zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Raiders of the Lost Ark. Released June 12, 1981, it was written by Lawrence Kasdan, based on a story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, directed by Steven Spielberg, and released by Paramount Pictures. In 1973, George Lucas had just finished American Graffiti and was reminded by a vintage movie poster of the serial films of the 30s and 40s like Buck Rogers and Zorro. His interest in producing a modern-day B-movie coalesced into a story, called at the time, The Adventures of Indiana Smith. The character was named after Marshall Lucas's Alaskan Malamute dog, Indiana, who also inspired the design of Chewbacca by regularly riding around in the passenger seat of George's car. So when in the last movie in the third movie when he's like you were named after the dog that's true yeah exactly <laughs> we're named the dog indiana as we discussed in our flash gordon review last season lucas had his heart set on adapting that serial to the big screen but at the time the rights were in italian director federico fellini's hands and would later pass to mike hodges in 1975 lucas got together with philip kaufman and spent two weeks putting together the story of a college professor slash archaeological adventurer, basing the character loosely on archaeologists Hiram Bingham III, discoverer of Machu Picchu, Roy Chapman Andrews, discoverer of the first known fossilized dinosaur eggs, and Leonard Woolley, best known for his excavations at Ur in Mesopotamia, the last of whom gets his name on a building of the Marshall College campus where our hero is employed. Several attributes of the original character, however, did not survive through to the film. Lucas originally envisioned Dr. Smith as a womanizer playboy with deadly karate skills. <laughs> the framework for the character came from the Eastwood and Mifune molds, with the globe-trotting sophistication of the Bond franchise. From the beginning, Kaufman recommended the Ark of the Covenant as the film's primary MacGuffin after learning of its supposed existence from a childhood dentist. Hitler's well-documented obsession with the occult made him an obvious choice of adversary. Particular inspiration was found in the 1973 Trevor Ravenscroft novel, The Spear of Destiny, the occult power behind the spear which pierced the side of Christ, and how Hitler inverted the force in a bid to conquer the world, which was in turn based on the existing artifact and its own supernatural history. As the title spells out, the Spear of Destiny, also known as the Holy Lance or Lance of Longinus, was supposedly used to stab Jesus in the side as he hung on the crucifix. For some time, the spear was in the possession of Napoleon, until just after his defeat at Waterloo, Hitler put a lot of faith in these religious artifacts and managed to steal the spear, along with other important pieces. After World War II, Himmler kept the artifacts hidden to motivate a return to power for the Nazis, but the collection was eventually discovered by Lieutenant Walter Horn of the Monuments Men, the famous post-war fine art recovery team, and it is currently on display in Hofburg Palace, Vienna, Austria. But there's actually a spear on display that's supposed to have stabbed Jesus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go check it out. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we covered a Nazi character looking to benefit from ancient religious artifacts? The big red one? 
No, that was that was a different World War. Well, there was Nazis in the big red one. Yeah, well, World yeah. War II? There, there it's were, World War Two. I thought it was World War One. No, no the World very War beginning of the movie is World War One. Oh. But then in World War Two, they're back in the same place doing all the mm. same stuff, and they go through the whole war again. Got it. That's not the formula. Oh, was it the David Bowie one? No, because that were they were Nazis, but there was no artifacts. The answer is Cabo Blanco. Uh, oh yeah. With Jason Robards as fake Nazi Gunther Beckdorf based loosely on real Nazi Martin Bormann, who, according to the events of 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, moved to Paraguay and changed his name to Alberto Minaletta before producing a counterfeit golden ticket in the hopes of visiting Wonka's factory. Well, and maybe, maybe, uh, what is the one with the monkeys in it? Going Going ape. Going ape. (laughs) We don't know that he's not a Nazi, for sure. But is he benefiting from ancient religious artifacts? Well, he's pretending that they're ancient religious artifacts. He's selling pieces of the cross, right? Okay, so you're calling Tony Danza a Nazi. (laughs) I'm not saying he is, but I'm not saying he's not. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Lucas invited Philip Kaufman to direct the film, but Kaufman was attached at the time to the outlaw Josie Wales, which he wound up only writing because Eastwood took over directing on that one. So Lucas put the Indiana story on a shelf to go finish Star Wars. Lucas and Spielberg both had high-profile science fiction films releasing in 77, Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and went on a summer vacation to Hawaii together to avoid reading any bad press. They shared their plans for future projects, with Spielberg actively campaigning for a Bond film and being slapped down multiple times by Cubby Broccoli, for his lack of experience. And by experience, he probably meant experience being born in England. Not until this year, 2021, has an American been granted a director credit on a Bond film. In fact, during the production of 1979's Moonraker, Cubby was the one calling Spielberg for a favor, hoping to include a Close Encounters reference in his Bond in Space adventure. At the end of the call, Spielberg asked a third time to be considered for a future film, and again he was shut down. By the time Cubby finally wised up, Spielberg was out of their price range. Lucas shared the story of Indiana Smith, and when Kaufman had officially turned the project down, Lucas offered it to Spielberg, who quickly nixed Smith as the hero's surname. From today's perspective, Jones seems like an obvious upgrade, but probably only because we grew up with the franchise. Outside of those films, I've always considered Smith and Jones to be fairly interchangeable names. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Spielberg's specific complaint was that people would be reminded of Steve McQueen's Nevada Smith from the 1966 film of the same name. Counterintuitively, Lucas replaced the surname with another established character, Idaho Jones, from the mid-40s Western serials Raiders of Ghost City and The Scarlet Horseman. Spielberg also suggested that Indy should be a raging alcoholic, but Lucas was looking for more of a role model character. Is Indy supposed to be a role model here? I think so. For George Lucas, he was. Yeah. From January 23rd to the 27th of 1978, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan met in Lucas's assistant's home in Sherman Oaks to flesh out their protagonist and hammer down the plot of the film beat for beat. A recording was kept of these meetings, and a transcript is easy enough to find online. I've included it in a Twitter thread posted along with this episode. I'm sure they're Kasdan's tapes, because he would have wanted to have all of this to refer to when he was Mm -hmm. writing. Kasdan, a relative newcomer to screenwriting, was entrusted to compile these conversations into the screenplay after Lucas read Kasdan's script for Continental Divide, which Spielberg was set to produce, and which would eventually hit theaters a mere three months after Raiders. Amazingly, Kasdan was also entrusted last year 
to do a rewrite on Lee Brackett's script for Lucas's Empire Strikes Back. Spielberg had warned Kasdan, bringing him on, that Lucas might ask him to rewrite American Graffiti 2, but I don't think he ever expected to offer him a draft on Star Wars 2. Kasdan's charge here was, essentially, to stitch together the wide range of set pieces conceived by Lucas and Spielberg, and did his work in Spielberg's office during the production of 1941. Kasdan originally conceived of Jones as a grave-robbing anti-hero. The first draft also included scenes like a Shanghai encounter where a gong was used to shield Indy from machine gun fire, hey. <laughs> jumping out of a plane in an inflatable raft, mm. and a minecart chase that were ultimately excised to streamline the story but show up four years later in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Amazingly, they had a hard time locking in a studio because of Lucas's price and Spielberg's recent career stumbles. Lucas predicted a budget of $20 million and made his trademark demands for complete creative control and all licensing rights, including potential sequels. Spielberg's latest outing, 1941, was a critical and commercial failure, but Lucas refused to move forward without Spielberg attached. Michael Eisner at Paramount talked Lucas into offering exclusive rights to the sequels, but warned of severe penalties for going over schedule or budget, for which Spielberg brought producer Frank Marshall on board. Tom Selleck was not just considered, but straight up cast in the role of Indiana Jones and later forced to withdraw. What do you mean forced? Who forced him? He had just wrapped the Magnum P.I. pilot, and when Spielberg and Lucas asked CBS to release him 10 days early from a special shoot, CBS instead said, Oh, Selleck is in high demand, apparently, and greenlit the show immediately, meaning that Selleck was now contractually obligated to do the series. It's similar to what happened to Pierce Brosnan when Roger Moore was hanging up his double-O agency, Brosnan was wrapping the final season of Remington Steel when it became public knowledge that he was next in line for Bond, but then the numbers for Remington Steel picked up as a result of people tuning in to see the next Bond, and the show got a last-minute renewal. Did that delay uh, the the Brosnan Bond? or It, yeah, it gave the job to somebody else. Oh. Brosnan's obligation to appear in the series meant that he had to withdraw from consideration, but luckily they came back to him after Timothy Dalton's outings didn't sufficiently connect with moviegoers. Which, oh. which are ridiculous because I love living. They're life. great. They're super dark and people loved it when Daniel Craig went there, but they weren't ready for it. It's so funny because in my mind, and, I, and I'm sure it's because. He did so few. Well, he yeah, Timothy Dalton did so few. And then like as, as a child, I started Bond with Pierce Brosnan. Right. Because yeah. that was what was coming out when I was a kid, you know. And so it in my mind, there's like this huge chasm between the two, but yeah, they yeah, were yeah. right in line with each other. <laughs> yep. I mean, there was still probably a seven-year gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye or something like that. There's always long gaps between Bonds for some reason. But it's interesting that they were thinking of him then seven years prior. Or how many? There was one or two Daltons? Two there Daltons. There were two. There were two. So Yeah, even longer than so, that, yeah. So for 10 years, they were considering... Pierce Brosnan before they actually made him a Bond. Mm -hmm. I have read, and I, I don't know if this is true, that Timothy Dalton was approached back when they hired Roger Moore for Live and Let Die. So Timothy Dalton would have been like early 20s playing the Bond huh. character and was like, I am not ready to take over for Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. And then they went to him, but luckily they came back to Timothy Dalton the same way that they eventually came back to oh, That's interesting. Hmm. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, yeah. When do we get our, our first Bond film on the Later this year. This Actually, year? it's in the next like 10 episodes. Oh, is it really? Yeah. I haven't been paying attention to the upcoming schedule. For your eyes only. Lucas was reluctant to cast Harrison Ford because he didn't want their careers to be so inextricably linked. He also didn't believe Ford would be willing to lock into another trilogy contract. On the way to Ford, other actors considered, reportedly, included Bill Murray, Nick Nolte, 
Steve Martin, Chevy Chase. None of these make any sense to no. me. No. Yeah. Tim Matheson, Nick Mancuso, Peter Coyote, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, John Shea, Sam Elliott, Harry Hamlin, and Sam Neill. Okay, there's a couple in there. I'll go. Yeah, yeah I'll toward go the end with they like get a, a Sam Neill or um, even Jeff Bridges. Yeah, he'd be great. Yeah. I would love Sam Elliott to have done it. Yeah, that would have been good. It's funny to think that the dude and the cowboy from Big Lebowski were both (laughs) up for the role. Well, I feel like the the beginning of that list of people is a much different movie than what we ended up with. And I'm just wondering if in their heads it was much more uh, tongue-in-cheek than it ended up being. Yeah, maybe. That makes sense. Yeah, because Steve Martin or Bill Murray, it's a completely different – even Tom Selleck – it's a different movie. Oh, for sure. Like, and I honestly, I I think that was a bullet dodged. Like I I love Tom Selleck you know, on Magnum, but I don't think that that character survives into a second or third movie in the Indiana Jones universe. Yeah. Although Sam Neill as a proto Alan Grant might have been great. Like I like <laughs> Sam Neill as an option too. Yes, I would have loved that. <laughs> yeah. Especially like a little bit of scruff on there. Oh my gosh, yes. Jeff Bridges was very close, but Marsha Lucas was pushing for Selleck until CBS snagged him away. Most depressingly for Selleck, the shooting of Magnum season was interrupted by the 1980 actor strike, and he was actually available for the full length of Raiders production, but they'd already recast the part. Coincidentally, Magnum and Indy would go on to inspire the costumes of Disney's Rescue Rangers Chip and Dale. Oh, yeah. There you go. Look, I did what I did. I don't expect you to be happy about it. But maybe it can do us both some good. Selleck would have his turn with the fedora and bullwhip, though, in the form of Magnum P.I. Season 8, Episode 10, Legend of the Lost Art. In 1988. A full-on parody of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nice. Well, and I just want to make it known because people are not in the room with us that Richard is is wearing his fedora for this he episode. Yeah. And he brought the fertility idol with yeah, him. Yeah, the Peruvian fertility idol. Perfect. <laughs> and this is an official Indiana Jones is it? Uh, Adventureland. So does that mean like it's Lucasfilm brand or it's like the, the actual brand? Well, you just brand bought it from Disneyland? It, I bought it from Disneyland, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's from Adventureland. Perfect. So I'm sure it is official Lucasfilm branded. Approved. Selleck would also play the vaguely Indiana Jones-inspired Patrick O'Malley, a hard-drinking biplane pilot from the 20s, in 1983's High Road to China. The film also stars Bess Armstrong and Jack Weston, who co-starred in The Four Seasons earlier this year. Armstrong was Len Carew's new young pregnant wife, and Weston was the heavier old guy who left the cabin in snow to find her. Coincidentally, Tom Selleck is currently starring on The Blue Bloods with Carew, also from Four Seasons, inexplicably playing Selleck's father, despite only being six years older than him. (laughs) Not unlike how Harrison Ford and Sean Connery are only 12 years apart, playing father and son in the third Indiana Jones film. Harrison Ford was offered his fourth role in a George Lucas production after American Graffiti and two Star Wars. He was immediately drawn to the character and began intense training to get fit and to learn to use a bullwhip. Does he actually use it himself? He does. Oh my gosh. Including when he whips the gun out of the guy's hand that was he did that, that shot was, on set that was real yeah for marion lucas wanted deborah winger who was not interested and spielberg pitched surprise of surprises his girlfriend amy <laughs> irving <laughs> as we mentioned in our honeysuckle rose review she had the offer in hand when spielberg learned that irving had had a brief affair with willie nelson on the set of that film and rescinded the role amazingly this pettiness was rewarded four years later with irving's hand in marriage 
Weirdest of all, their marriage occurred a year after the release of Raider's prequel, Temple of Doom, starring Spielberg's eventual second wife, Kate Capshaw, playing a character named Willie. So Spielberg and Irving both left each other for Willies. <laughs> <laughs> Out of context, that's amazing. <laughs> Other names tossed about include Jane Seymour, Lisa Eilbacher, Mary Steenburgen would have been cute. Oh, yeah. Dee Wallace, Valerie Bertinelli, Linda Pearl, Patty Darbinville, Michelle Pfeiffer, Stephanie Zimbalist, Barbara Hershey, and Sean Young before Spielberg recommended Karen Allen after seeing her work in Animal House. Karen was the clear favorite because she had spunk and she was sort of a firebrand and she reminded me of the 30s women. She had that kind of Irene Dunn quality about her and a little, a little bit of the Carol Lombard and she just seemed perfect for the part. I mean, there's some good choices in there. There but, are. Um, I'm definitely happy with what we ended up yes. with. Yeah. Karen Allen is cute as a button. Yeah, she's great. She really doesn't have enough, like, huge titles. Like, there's only, like, three or four that I can think of off the top of my head. She should have been in so much more stuff. She's so great. Yeah, but I love in this role because she it's it's not just that she's just amazingly charming and adorable in everything she does. She's tough, too. Which, yeah, you know, she sells I think, the anger. I think it's a, I think that's a really hard combination to, to get in, in an actress that you're like, I totally believe you're tough, but you're also adorable. Right. But if it had to happen, Sean Young, I think, is the obvious second choice here and was basically cast until Selleck backed out, but she got the chance the following year to appear opposite Ford in Blade Runner. I like the Jane Seymour option, though. Yeah. I yeah, think that that works. Great. I think yeah. she could be tough and cute. Yeah. I like Lisa Eilbacher, too. We had her in uh, On the Right Track. She was the woman who was adopting yeah. the kid in that. Okay. Um, and I'm surprised that like Sigourney Weaver isn't on that list. That is G- weird. Given Aliens, uh, Alien uh, Yeah, she would have been great. Yeah. Dee Wallace obviously stars in Spielberg's follow-up, E.T., with Peter Coyote, who read for Indy. And a faceless Harrison Ford cameo as Elliot's principal that ended up on the cutting room floor. Marion's full name came from Kasdan's grandmother-in-law, combined with a street in Los Angeles. The only Ravenwood I could find was Ravenwood Court off Beverly Glen by the Stone Canyon Reservoir. Oh, I thought I thought it was maybe supposed to be a reference to Ravencroft, which was... Uh, the author of the, the Spear book? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Despite some harrowing violence, the film was granted a PG rating meaning that all kids were welcome to see the film unsupervised. Yeah. This was mostly the fault of a flawed rating system, as PG-13 <laughs> had not yet come into use as a rating. So once they cut enough to keep it under R, the next rating down was, come on in, kids. Uh, that's Headshot. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are so many, like, bullets to the head. Yeah. Like, I was like, oh. Well, and that section, um, like, in the truck, was exactly when Una, was our three-year-old, was hanging out with me while I was trying to finish the movie. And she's like, she watch, she watches Indy go under the truck, and she's like, oh, he's going to get run over. I'm like, oh, no, he's not. And then the next guy Different gets, guy gets, gets run, run over. over. She's like, <laughs> I think that people die when they get run over. And I'm like, yeah, they do, but this isn't real. That didn't just happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You're dreaming. <laughs> go back to sleep. In 1984, after Raiders and its PG follow-up, Temple of Doom, <laughs> which, <is laughs> which even... has people's hearts getting ripped out. Yeah. They both famously inspired nightmares in their younger viewers. Spielberg petitioned the MPAA to develop a rating between the two. Later the same year, John Milius's Red Dawn became the first official PG-13 release. On a final budget of $18 million, Raiders of the Lost Ark 
opened to $50 million in its first three weeks and ended its run with $135 million to become Paramount's highest-grossing release ever at the time and the highest-grossing film of the year by a long shot. It was nominated for eight Oscars, taking home art direction, sound, editing, and visual effects, as well as a special award for sound effects editing, but lost cinematography to Vittorio Storaro for Reds, directing to Warren Beatty for Reds, original score to Chariots of Fire, and best picture to Chariots of Fire. Score, I think, is a tricky one. Yeah. Because I have never seen Chariots of Fire. But I know that score. But, but so, the only thing I know yeah. about it is the score. <laughs> and so for me to say that it's not as good as the score here, which is a tremendous score, yeah. one of the best scores in all of film history, I know that other song and I haven't even seen that movie. So it's decent, at least. That's, it sounded, unfortunately, very Trump-like. It's a tremendous score. One of the best scores in human history. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm trying to do. That's my new persona. The film was followed by a prequel, for some reason, in 1984 called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and later a sequel in 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, at which point I believe Raiders was artificially retitled Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I feel like that's probably true as far as marketing. Yeah, with boxed sets and stuff yeah. like that. So why would you... Okay, if the second film is a prequel, and is it because we don't want to ruin their relationship? That's literally at the, end the, of the film? only reason. The only okay. reason that it's a prequel is because Karen Allen's not in it, and they didn't want people to say, "Why isn't Karen Allen in it?" But also, no one's paying attention to the year that this story takes place. Right. So people still asked that at the time. Yeah. And he quickly became like a James Bond character who just has a different girl every time, and it doesn't matter. Well, also though, what what I like about Temple of Doom, sorry, there were kind of tangenting. No, we haven't even talked about this film yet. Um, is that they go back to that earlier draft where he's a grave robber. Right, yes. Like, that he is not, he's very much an anti-hero in that film. Yeah. And in this film, he's grown beyond that. Right. So they're they're building the character in reverse, kind of, by showing mm -hmm. what he came from. I'm pretty sure at our blockbuster, we still sorted Raiders under the R's just to spite the retitling. So it was like around yeah. the corner from the rest of the series. <laughs> People are like, you don't have Raiders? And we're like, Raiders. Because we are. <laughs> just so we could correct the people coming yeah, in you're like it's not indiana jones it's called <laughs> raiders of the lost ark it's a different title i do it with first blood there you go yeah, i don't put first blood with the other rambos no it goes with the f's sadly the franchise ended there except for two seasons of abc's the young indiana jones chronicles starring Corey carrier and sean patrick flannery as the child and teenage versions of the title character there's also a bunch of books video games and rides and fine, there's also technically a fourth film called <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull from 2008, which reunited Ford and Karen Allen and introduced their son together, Mutt Williams, played by Shia LaBeouf. A fifth film is now in production for the first time with a new director in Logan's James Mangold. A title has not been made official, but I'm going to make my prediction right now that it in some way involves D. Glocka, a fabled Nazi time machine, since the rumor is that it will involve elements of time travel and take place somewhere around the 60s when the earliest documentations of Die Glocke have been uncovered. I don't like it. <laughs> and then I looked into it. After doing some research, I have found that several supposed leaks also make mention of Die Glocke, as well as Operation Paperclip. And I think that they've spotted, like, NASA stuff on the set. Okay. So I think we're going to have Nazis again, which those are the best Indiana Jones movies, so the ones with, with the Nazis in them. Right, but, like... Okay. But Paperclip would have already happened by Crystal Skull. 
Crystal been, Skull is in the is in the early fifties. That's what I'm saying. Like we're beyond paperclip at that point. Right, but they didn't fire them all in the fifties. They were still working there in the sixties. Right, right. But but the, to say that this story involves Operation Paperclip, like you could well, say that and it involves Operation Paperclip in that America has been infiltrated by these German scientists who work for NASA, but I think are going after this experimental time mm. machine thing because they want to change the results of the war they lost. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's how they're going to do it, but. But, like, I feel like you can't, and this is the problem that I've always had with the fourth wedge. So you, you can't do God sure. and yeah. a cult and aliens and, and time now travel. you're doing time travel. Like Here's the thing. You get Now one. I don't care. <laughs> now you don't care. <laughs> now now it doesn't matter. Okay. We've broken the seal and you could literally <laughs> have dinosaurs in the next one. I don't give a shit. In That's fact, fine. I desperately want to see Indiana Jones fight a dinosaur. <laughs> So do that. So so time travel. Open dinosaurs. that time machine 65 million years ago, please. <laughs> and then he just jumps into a fridge right before the comet hits. And the T-Rex's fridge? Like, whose fridge is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fred, Fred Flintstone's fridge. Yeah. It's just a pig that's cold for some reason on the inside. <laughs> it's a living. <laughs> just tear open a pig's chest and put a bunch of beer in it. <laughs> To that effect, my title recommendation is Indiana Jones and the Toll of the Bell, because a bell tolling poetically implies the end of something, but also Glocka translates as the bell, and there could be a toll to pay if this technology fell into the wrong hands. The fifth installment is set to star Ford again, this time joined by Mads Mikkelsen, perfect Nazi actor, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Hmm. Also, if they introduce a grandson here, I vote they name him Dog to keep the pattern going. <laughs> Indiana was named after a dog. Mud is a word for dog. Dog is dog. <laughs> to accentuate Spielberg's truly impressive visual storytelling and Douglas Slocum's flawless cinematography, Steven Soderbergh released a 2014 re-edit that stripped all audio and color from the film, inserting in their place an original electronic soundtrack. I watched it over the weekend, and I have to say that I was fascinated to find that the movie completely works as a silent film. The dialogue is never necessary to understand the message of each scene because the actors are essentially pantomiming everything they're saying. But I never noticed it when I had the dialogue to rely on. But you can follow every story point the whole I, way through it. I mean, I think that's just really strong filmmaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did, uh, on a recommendation of some filmmaker like website or something like that, uh, turn down all the saturation on my TV yeah. to watch the film in black and white. Yeah. As much as I could artificially do that with yeah. with TV settings. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it still looks really great. The problem is I know the colors in my head. So it's and, like and, they're there anyway. Yeah, so it's like I can I can still see them. That's it's not funny. like when you look at the original Adams Family TV series set and go, oh, this is not what I thought it looked like. It's all purple. It's, purple. <laughs> it's pink and purples. And it's like, like yeah, no, I know what this what the colors of everything is here is. Yeah. We start... As all Indiana Jones films do, with a match cut from the Paramount logo to a similar shape. In this case, Mono Peak of the Kalalea Mountains of Hawaii, Mono being the Hawaiian word for shark, and named so for its resemblance to a shark's fin, a fitting first image from the director of Jaws. We're looking up at this peak between the trees of a thick jungle. A man in a leather jacket and fedora steps into frame, facing away from us. He's followed by five or six local guides carrying his equipment. So... I love how this movie just gets right into it. Right. Like we're already seeing like just very simple text title cards or, you know, text over the film. Saying, I love this font too. Yeah. We saw it in like Saturn three, mm -hmm. this like white outline times new Roman. -ish. Yeah. 
and this is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Here's who's in it. Yeah. Like, that's it. The general costume design was borrowed by costume designer Deborah Nadulman from Edith Head's work on 1954's Charlton Heston film, Secret of the Incas, which also bears some plot resemblance to this film. Treasure hunter archaeologist Heston winds up in Machu Picchu near the discovery of a famous tomb and makes a determination that the locals are digging in the wrong place. He sneaks in after hours and uses a beam of light reflected through a medallion to locate the proper dig site, all in the same leather jacket, fedora, and whip. The costume has obviously inspired many characters that followed it. For instance, Kermit in the Muppet Babies intro, which actually uses footage from this film, but also, most famously, Dex Dog Detective, voiced by Charlie Sheen in the animated 2012 classic Food Fight. <laughs> As they slash their way through the jungle, one of the guides reveals a stone carving of a face and screams in fright at the apparent implication before running away. Because of the implication. <laughs> <laughs> the man in the fedora approaches the stone face and consults an aged map he's brought along. Two of his guides share a suspicious look behind him. As they move through the jungle, they pass a tree with a dart in its bark. Fedora man plucks it from the bark and brushes the tip before dropping it in the dirt. His guides scamper up behind him to double check the dart, and one makes a determination that the Jovitos are nearby. From the freshness of the poison, he guesses they are being followed. <laughs> poison is still fresh, three days. They're following us. And then he drops dead from the poison. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't happen. But also, how are they following you if, right. you're a, if they're ahead of you? Yeah, if the dart is here and it's three days old, aren't we following them? Well, but they make that point. That he's like, if we were being followed, we'd be dead by now. Yeah. A title card tells us that this is South America 1936, and later we will learn that it is Peru specifically. They come to a river, and Fedora reaches back to ask for another section of map from his guides. Fedora pieces the two maps together, and one of his guides sneaks up with a gun. But Fedora hears him pull the hammer back and spins around with a bullwhip to crack it hard over the guy's arm. And this was actually Harrison Ford doing this to the other actor who got like a wrist injury from it. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't think that I'd want to do that with a real whip whipping around they still do it now regardless when we talked to cooper huckabee for the macgyver podcast he said that they were literally whipping him on the set of django unchained like there's not a way to fake it real well that's crazy i mean i guess you could cg it now but that would be really expensive to make it look not like shit yeah for sure the guy drops his gun in the river and turns to run away while fedora steps into a beam of light and we get our first good look at archaeologist adventurer dr henry walton jones jr alias Indiana, as played by Harrison Ford, in his best role, for my money. The wounded guide, Baranka, disappears into the jungle, and the remaining guide, Satipo, played by Alfred Molina, has a newfound respect for the man they had made a mark of. Together, the two locate the mouth of the stone temple of the Chachapoyan warriors. Indiana Jones tells his guide about a friend who didn't make it out of this temple. This is where Forrestal cashed in. A friend of yours? A competitor. He was good. It was very, very good. At the entryway, Indy has the foresight to fill a small canvas bag with dirt. The guide warns him that the temple means certain death, but we cut forward in time a bit, and the guide is carrying Indy's torch as he moves through a tunnel coated in dense spiderwebs. Luckily, they're not, like, super flammable either, because that could have been a mess. Yeah. As they move deeper into the temple, we can see above them a large stone channel, and I think a hint of a spherical boulder resting in place, although I'm not confident that you can totally see the rock here. The guide informs Indy that he has a few tarantulas on his back, and Indy nonchalantly brushes them away with his coiled bullwhip. 
When the guide spins to have his own back inspected, he has maybe 40 tarantulas climbing all over him. <laughs> do tarantulas even make spider webs? They, they do, but not like this. Not not wispy ones that fill caves? No. Well, well, they, Halloween they, store spider webs. Yeah, no, it, it, they do make kind of wispy web, but they, they usually kind of like coat things on the ground. Mm. I think they mostly use it if like they're making some kind of burrow or, yeah. or things like that. But for the most part, they're... They're 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 hunters of like small birds. Well, and I was gonna like say that. that's and that's what I thought that 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 they go after small you know lizards or birds or whatever they can get their hands on or they're they're not hands. They're God, that would be terrifying. <laughs> it's just Eight little tiny hands, with little tiny hands, <laughs> little, little like Swedish chef type. <laughs> oh my God, that's weird. But like, what would encourage them in mass? To go and crawl onto these two guys while they're walking through there. Warmth. Oh. It was hard to get them to do it even in the movie because the spiders wouldn't move on their own. The only way they got them to move was when Alfred Molina turns around, you could see there's a giant tarantula on his chest. That one's a female. And so that's the only reason that they're even crawling is because they're trying to get around him to the female. Oh, interesting. I was going to say, have you tried staples? (laughs) (laughs) Staples? Don't you... Dare. You kiss Karen Allen. Yeah. yeah. No, I got it. <laughs> got it. Okay, all right. <laughs> and Bill Murray plays Indiana Jones, right? Oh, no, they didn't pick him. Again, Indy bats the 40 tarantulas to the cave floor with his whip. Continuing through the temple, they come to a shaft of light cutting through a tunnel, and Indy advises the guide to stay out of the light. He crawls under the beam and throws a hand into it from the other side, triggering a wall of spears with a corpse impaled on the pokey end. The corpse <laughs> is not quite a skeleton and still has enough flesh to emote terror. The face tilts toward Indy as if to look at him with intent. Like it's weird, like to like nitpick things in this movie, but I don't like this photosensitive trap that also automatically resets itself. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. impressive. Well, yeah, because I'm like, I'm not entirely sure how I would do that now. How are we doing that in ancient? Like, yeah. how do we have some sort of photoreceptor thing that is triggering something? Maybe the light has nothing to do with it, and he hit a tiny string. Mm. Yeah. That's my theory. Fair enough. The light, the light's a distraction from yeah. the actual trap. The light is so they know where the string is. So, or so you can't see the string because it's like glare. Ah. Yeah. Well, we then, fixed it. We fixed it, guys. <laughs> well, then, but then it's just the resetting of the trap, the automatic reset. There's a that. guy. They have a guy. <laughs> they have a guy coming He's in. He's impaled on it. <laughs> that guy just puts it back every you get, time. You get impaled and says, now please take 10 steps back. <laughs> Be kind. Rewind. <laughs> the guide is paralyzed with fear and Indy seems familiar with the deceased, addressing the victim as Forrestal, his friend who didn't make it out of the temple. The next temple trap is a seemingly bottomless pit, which Indy traverses by swinging across the width of it with his whip wrapped around a support beam above the pit. When the guide follows him across, he almost loses his balance until Indy catches him by the belt and pulls him to safety. They leave the whip hanging here to use in their escape. I wouldn't leave the whip. I, I, you can't leave the whip. You use the whip for everything what you do. What if there's another pit? What like, if there's just bring so, yeah, it with you. Yeah. Or anything else that you use your whip endlessly for. Scraping off spiders, per se. Yeah. <laughs> you could always re-whip the beam later. Yeah. yeah. They step to the final chamber of the temple, where they find a small golden idol on a pedestal in the center of a large room. The guide stupidly assumes that they've seen the last of the temple's traps, but Indy stops him from clumsily stomping through the chamber, even shoving him hard against the wall, which I'm surprised didn't trigger anything. It's really, <laughs> they've only seen one trap. Yeah. Indy kneels down and peels back a layer of mud, obscuring a diamond-shaped button in the floor, but then stupidly jams the button down with the torch, which triggers a dart to fire across the room and stab into the torch. 
He had no idea which direction this dart would come from. Well, or even that would be a dart. Like, yeah. If or how many of them would if come. If you're in the general vicinity of this button, I would presume you wouldn't want to push it right. while you're in its general vicinity. <laughs> he orders Satipo to wait, and he crosses the room slowly, taking care to avoid all of the floor's diamond shapes. The walls of the room are speckled with holes, probably all loaded with darts, but decorated to resemble the eye holes and nostrils of face carvings. Indy comes face to face with the golden idol and inspects the mechanics of the pedestal. I never looked at this idol very closely before, but apparently it's a fertility idol, and I never noticed that it has a second screaming face emerging from its crotchal region. It Would you like does? to see it? Yes. He's got it right here. Oh my god, I don't I don't even think I noticed the second screaming face. Let me see. Oh lord oh this is heavier than I expected. It's that's the real one. Uh, oh <laughs> no, it's not. And by a second screaming face, you mean a, a child being birthed yeah. yeah yeah usually a fertility <laughs> idol is a pregnant woman not literally like immediate post-pregnancy wow well post this is mid-pregnancy i mean well not mid-pregnancy no, <laughs> sweetie <laughs> you've been it's, through this <laughs> no it's mid-delivery i mean there you go i keep this in my room <laughs> it's not working Richard. <laughs> no i it is i'm very fertile <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Get one of those sea monkey tanks. <laughs> oh my god. Is it because of the little magnifiers yeah, on the edge of the, the tank? magnifier windows. <laughs> oh god. Indy retrieves the bag of sand and makes an assumption of the idol's weight, removing a handful of sand to match it. In one swift move, he replaces the idol with the sandbag. The music rings out with the tension of the scene, but just as Indy turns to leave, the pedestal sinks into the platform behind him, and the temple begins to cave in on itself. Does this mean that it was too heavy, and it's pushing the pedestal down? It's too light. No, then it would, wouldn't the pedestal go up? Well, no, but I'm just I see that's the, that's the problem. You think that the pedestal goes down because it of the weight of the of the sand? Yes. Cuz I just thought it's like, oh, this is a mismatch, so now I've triggered the button that's moving. Well, I guess if if we have photosensitive traps, then it's yeah, we can. Well, because it's not, it could be a digital scale for all. Right, we know. because it's not an immediate reaction. It's not like you put it down and it immediately starts right. to sink, right, which right, would right. be a weight trigger thing. I always assume that it's just like mm, this doesn't check out. Now I'm going to activate. There's I always wondered as a kid, what if he just didn't put anything there? Yeah, there's a magnet in the bottom of the statue. Oh, the that moment you smart. disconnect it, then it falls down into the pit. So he would have needed to measure exactly enough sand to form a magnet. <laughs> but like it seems, it seems not to question our, our ancient civilization's motivations. But if you're going to put an idol on a pedestal and want it to be left alone, so you cover it in traps all around, and the final trap is going to just bury it mm-hmm. forever, why not just bury it forever? <laughs> yeah. Why do why does why do the hallways lead to this room if you didn't want people to find it? Just put wall after wall in front of it for years and then no one can ever find it again yeah indy books it back across the room making no effort to avoid the booby traps and sends poison darts whipping back and forth across the chamber in his wake probably way behind him because they're probably set to fire in front of the button there there was a bit of a delay between the button press and the firing yeah 
Indy's guide uses the whip to swing over the pit, but the whip comes loose when he is safely on the other side. When Indy gets to the edge of the pit, Satipo offers him a trade. No time to argue. Throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. But as he may have predicted, once the idol crosses the pit, Indy is abandoned. With no other option, he leaps across the pit, catching the opposite edge across his chest and scrabbling for a vine to pull himself up by while a stone wall closes in front of him. Scrabbling? Scrabbling. Scrabbling for a vine. Scrambling? Scrabbling. Okay. It's like clawing at, you mm-hmm. know? Or like putting down putting letters. Putting letters down. In a certain <laughs> yeah, yeah. order to get points. <laughs> Spelling the, the to maxim- get himself. Yeah, the maximum amount of points because it would be a seven-letter word. As soon as he catches a vine, it suddenly loosens and the slack dangles Indy further over the edge of the pit, but he manages to pull himself up and rolls under the closing stone door, then reaches back under it to grab his whip before this section of the temple is blocked forever. Now, even if he was trapped behind those storm doors, there's a way out. This is open to the sky. I mean, well, I, yeah, because there's, there's a skylight in the Because there's in light the coming out. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, I guess, like, worst case scenario, he could attempt to climb out. Right. But maybe the skylight is not big enough for him to fit through, and it's rock that mm. he can't do anything with. As he moves cautiously toward the exit, Indy encounters another corpse stabbed through by the spear wall. And I would never have recognized this as Satipo's character if we didn't immediately cut to the idol on the ground beside him. But in defense of whoever modeled this wax face, they couldn't have known how famous Alfred Molina was going to be. So they didn't have to be so exact at the time. Indy is in the home stretch now with a straightaway to the exit when he finds himself in the path of an enormous 22-foot diameter boulder, which has been dislodged by the crumbling of the temple and chases him toward the temple door. He runs through another pack of spider webs, freshly hung by spiders during the 15 <laughs> minutes Indy has spent in the cave since tearing them down on the way in. Now, what bothers me about the rolling boulder yeah. is like when when he first sees it, it's like on the track that it would need to come mm-hmm. down. And I'm like, all you needed to do was duck right there or make your way back and wait like two seconds and it would be in front of you. There's like, an answer to that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe you don't want it in front of you. Because then you wouldn't be able to get out. Does it get stuck? Yeah. It does. Oh, because it it doesn't come out at the end. Okay. All right. Fair enough. He dives out the door and tumbles down a hill outside, only to find himself on the wrong end of three dozen spears and arrows held presumably by the Havidos tribe that Satipo suspected were following them. The guide, whose gun he whipped away, is dropped face first with 20 poison darts stabbed in his back. A pair of boots step over the dead man, and a rival archaeologist named Rene Balak leans in close to collect from Indy his whip, gun, and prized idol. Did you actually pause and count the darts? No. You're just estimating. Estimating, yeah. Okay, just making sure. But 40 spiders sounds like too many, just just for the record. You, you don't think it was 40? No, it was like 15. <laughs> no, it was more than 15. Mm. I counted those. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. Too bad the Jovitos don't know you the way I do, Belloc. Yes, too bad. You could warn them, if only you spoke Hovitos. He raises the idol in the air, and the tribe bows in reverence. Indy takes advantage of the moment to escape, and Belloc orders the tribe after him. As they chase him past the carving that frightened his first guide, a flock of birds come fluttering out of the statue's mouth, and we get one of those classic echoing villain laughs from Belloc. Belloc's laugh here is, like, burned into my memory. Yeah. <laughs> Indy manages to outrun the tribe to his ride, a pontoon plane parked in the river with waiting pilot Jacques Lindsay. So did he have 
Baraka and Satibo walk that way, and he flew in casually and then said, let's go, guys. I'm assuming they met him at the plane. So, yeah, maybe. Or maybe, yeah, because there's not enough seats in the plane for Baranka and Satipo to have come with. Yeah, them. and also their pack mules that they brought. Yeah, well, they might have ordered that stuff. That might have been like a Grubhub situation. <laughs> I actually stupidly bothered to check the plane's tail number before I realized it was a Star Wars reference. <laughs> well, you know, what's really funny is I like... I uh, like I couldn't quite see it, and I was like, "Oh, I don't know what those first two letters are." Um, but I, I'm like, "Is it a coincidence that it's a Star Wars thing?" And I'm no. like, "I can't quite make out the first letters." Then I looked it up. I'm like, "Oh, okay, it's definitely not a coincidence." Yeah, the tail <laughs> number here reads O B C P O as a reference to the characters of O B one and C three P O. Although ironically. Peruvian aircraft tail numbers did start with the letters OB after 1928, but the CPO part does not follow Peruvian registration conventions. The exact plane is actually on display outside the Crystal Skull ride at Tokyo Disney. Visitors to Disney Springs in Walt Disney World, Florida, can stop in for a drink at Jock Lindsay's Hangar Bar, an aviation-themed restaurant dedicated entirely to this one-off pilot character, who, based on his shirt, seems to operate a business called Air Pirates. That's so bizarre. Yeah. There's an entire Disney cafe dedicated to this guy. To just Jock Lindsay, yeah. See, I would have dedicated it to Katanga. Well, that would be a Ship-themed. Nautical ship-themed, theme. Yeah, nautical. As Indy approaches the plane, Jock can be seen balancing on one of his plane's floats and fishing in the river. Indy screams to his friend, who quickly notices the fast-approaching tribe and struggles for a moment to decide between starting the plane and reeling in the fish he's just caught. He's also dangling his foot into the water. Yeah. I was like, uh, yeah. Depending on where we are in South America, that could be a <laughs> yeah. terrible plan. In this shot of Indy running toward the plane, the landscape looks suspiciously like Isla Nublar from Jurassic Park, probably because both films shot in Hawaii. The plane takes a couple tries to get started, and the sound of the first engine failure for Jock <laughs> is the same sound we heard last year, as the hyperdrive malfunction from Empire. Watch this. Watch what? It is reused again as the engine failure noise in Temple of Doom, just before they crash the plane into the mountains in India. Fuel. Fuel. Jock gets the plane started, and Indy swings on a vine out over the water before swimming frantically to his passing ride home. Do we think that the repetition of sounds is like an homage or just we don't have a lot of great sound effects, so let's just use the same one we used last I time. I think it's probably more of an homage. Okay. It, it makes more sense for this plane than it does for the Millennium Falcon. I think when they used it there, it was kind of like a, wouldn't it be funny if this made like an old-timey airplane mm. noise? Oh. But this is actually an old-timey airplane. Yeah. Okay. I just like it like is you know, is it them trying to put an Easter egg in of using the same sounds or not? I wouldn't be surprised if they were doing that already back then. Maybe. But then again, I question it because of like the thirty Wilhelm screams that are like right. coming up in the, in yep. the film. <laughs> Darts and arrows bounce off the plane as it approaches liftoff speed, and Jock and Indy are off into the sky. After a moment of flying, Indy notices a snake in his lap and informs the pilot, but Jock explains that the snake is simply his pet Reggie. If that were me, I wouldn't have said anything to the pilot. I'd have thrown Reggie yeah. out of the plane, yeah. <laughs> assuming that it came thing. from the river. <laughs> but I might also remember Reggie from my flight into Peru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that's what I'm saying. Like It it seems like Indy didn't fly with this guy. Yeah. 
but he, just he had somehow... him staged there for yeah. the for the ride out. Yeah. Indy makes it clear that snakes are a visceral fear of his. Spielberg and Lucas have both freely admitted that this first temple was inspired at least in part by Carl Barks's Scrooge McDuck adventure comics of the 50s and specifically 1954's The Seven Cities of Cibola, which features an ancient idol prize and an enormous boulder booby trap, and 1959's The Prize of Pizarro, with a temple full of booby traps, ending with another enormous boulder triggered to run along a specific path and chase the raiders from the temple. I've included screenshots from both comics in the same Twitter thread for this episode. There's a really great podcast I recently found called the I Read Movies Podcast, where host Paxton Hawley reads the novelizations of films and cites all of the differences or elaborations from the book. In the case of Raiders, we learn that Indiana and his Peruvian guides each had half of the map to the temple and agreed to share their knowledge and split the winnings. The book also specifically states that the boulder was on a path to lodge itself in the temple's entrance, locking the chamber shut like a tomb. I thoroughly recommend seeking out the show if you like these extra details. Again, it's called I Read Movies, and I'll mention a few more differences that Paxton found, but not all of them. So you got to listen to his show if you want to hear all of them. Well, you got to start listening to those episodes for everything that we do. If you I listen to every episode of Everything for Everything. This is the first one that he's covered that we've covered. Oh, okay. You should tell him to do uh, the ninth configuration then. Oh, that's true. Read the Ballantine book. No? Anyone? I want the golden book of the ninth configuration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, that's, that's the line of verge we should be starting. <laughs> <laughs> As the plane rides off into the sunset, we cut to the fictional Marshall College in Bedford, Connecticut, named for producer Frank Marshall. We cut inside a classroom that reminded us earlier in the podcast of the classroom Charlton Heston leads in The Awakening or the classroom beside the fake school shooting and final exam. Indy is now in Dr. Jones mode. So for the scenes where he's dressed as a professor, I'm going to call him Dr. Jones, and then we'll switch <laughs> back to Indy in adventure mode. He's lecturing archaeology students on the Neolithic period and a specific archaeological site, the Turk Dean Barrow, when he is visited by Marcus Brody, Dean of Students, played by Denham Elliott. Dr. Jones pauses for a moment to acknowledge his entrance, but continues the lecture, pausing again when he notices a front row student has adeptly written love you across her eyelids and blinks the message to him. I've always read it as, love you. <laughs> okay. Just, just for the record. I don't think that's how they read it in 36. I know, but that's how I read it. <laughs> okay. The bell rings and Indy assigns a couple chapters of Michelson's work before excusing his students. One of whom, a grumpy looking male student, leaves an apple on the corner of his desk. Don't forget, Michelson chapters four and five for next time. Dr. Jones, by the way, is still assigning chapter four of Michelson's work to his students 21 years later in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Open up Michelson, review chapter four. When I come back, we'll discuss the difference between migration and exodus. Michelson had it right. Yeah. <laughs> chapter four, especially. That's where the good stuff was. He dropped five from the curriculum after a while. Indy preemptively apologizes to Marcus for losing the idol to Belloc, but already has a plan to get it back. He just needs $2,000 for a ticket to Marrakesh. It's the only place where he could have sold that idol. There's a 1983 comic book series called The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, where Indy heads to Marrakesh, the only place Belloc could have sold the fertility idol, and follows its trail to recover it for Brody's museum. There's also a scene in Frank Darabont's unused Indy 4 script, Indiana Jones and the City of the Gods, wherein a disgruntled and intoxicated Dr. Jones, having just been fired from Barnett College, decides to steal the idol from their museum on his way out. He breaks open the idol's case, but notices, as in Raiders, that the idol has been staged on a pressure-sensitive plate wired to an alarm, 
So he fills a handkerchief with sand from a public ashtray and reenacts the whole scene from the Chachapoyan temple. At the college. At the college. Okay. With like the present day technology doing the same thing that yeah. the temple had right. in the past. Yeah. But again, he misjudges the weight of the idol and the alarms go off and he makes a run for it. He's just really bad at this. <laughs> to cover the cost of the trip, Andy slips Marcus a few smaller pieces he collected from the temple, but Marcus has bigger fish to fry. And Marcus also just pockets them. Yeah, he just, yeah, he's these like, are great. These are great. <laughs> Whoop. Some people are here to see him. What you? Army intelligence. I knew you were coming before I did. Marcus and Indy meet with the G-Men in a larger lecture hall, probably Wooly Hall, based on the map of the fictional Marshall College that I found, and they confirm his relationship with a Professor Ravenwood. They make vague references to Ravenwood's rumored disappearance from somewhere in Asia, but Dr. Jones hasn't kept in touch. He and Ravenwood had some sort of unexplored falling out. The men get down to business with some confidential intel from the front lines of the ongoing war. They've intercepted a German transmission. You see, over the last two no. years, the Nazis have had teams of archaeologists running around the world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. Hitler's a nut on the subject. He's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. They've spotted German archaeological digs in the deserts outside of Cairo, and the transmission seems to relate to the digs. I think it's funny to say that Hitler's crazy because he's obsessed with the occult. Like, there's no other well, reason. Well, this is 36. Okay. So this is before he had done the widely publicized terrible crazy. stuff. Okay, got it. Tannis development proceeding. Acquire headpiece staff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, U.S. Jones responds immediately to the mention of Tannis, which he describes as the believed final resting place of the Ark of the Covenant something the G-Men seem blissfully unaware of. In the novel, they amusingly confuse the Ark of the Covenant with Noah's Ark, something I also did as a child. The Ark was a chest containing the shattered remains of the original stone tablets given to Moses in our previous film, with the 15... Ten! Ten commandments! So you thought that they were looking for a giant boat as a kid? When this speech started, I did. Okay. I was like, oh, they're looking for the Ark from the Bible. I know what the Ark from the Bible is. There's more Arks. Turns out there's other Arks. <laughs> Although there, apparently there is an Indiana Jones story about him finding the Ark. It's like uh, either extended universe novel or comic series, but mm. about looking for Noah's Ark specifically. Speaking of History of the World Part 1 and Spielberg movies, I noticed that the trailer for our previous film ends with the tagline, Ten million years in the making. Which obviously predates Jurassic Park's tagline, an adventure 65 million years in the making. Technically, according to the Bible, the Ark contains not the first broken set of tablets, but a reconstructed second set. It also canonically contained a bowl of manna and Aaron's flowering rod. <coughs> oh God, what is that? <laughs> you know. For sex. No, uh, <laughs> it was a stick that you touched it to things and flowers came out of them. Oh. Kind of. I don't. I didn't read a lot of it. In a bowl it. of manna? Yeah, a bowl of manna, which is, before it's technically legally mayonnaise, it's called manna. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the bowl of manna is. It's like when you have your grandmother cremated and you have a bowl of nana. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's weird. Dr. Jones talks them through the known whereabouts of the Ark. It was kept in Jerusalem for some time until an Egyptian pharaoh invaded the city in 980 BC. It is believed then that the Ark was relocated to a secret chamber in Tanis called the Well of Souls. As the story goes, the city of Tanis was buried and lost by a year-long sandstorm. 
It was an obsession of Professor Ravenwood's, but the government fears he may be working with the Nazis on this dig. Jones and Brody are quick to deny Ravenwood's involvement in their efforts, insisting that Ravenwood is a target because he's probably located the headpiece of the Staff of Ra. He describes to them how the staff works. Legend says that Tannis houses a chamber with a miniature map of the city, and when the staff is in the right place at the right time, sunlight pouring into the room will be refracted by a jewel in the staff's headpiece and point out on the miniature city where the Ark is hidden. They ask what the Ark is supposed to look like, and by coincidence, there's an illustration of the Ark in the book resting on the table in front of them. It's not resting. Jones brought this with him like he knew that's what they wanted almost I, I it's so bizarre because like i just he carries it into the room yeah he carries it into the room i thought for sure that that this was some kind of obviously lecture hall. maybe marcus was like you're gonna want to bring that. well they do they must stop before they come into this room after marcus grabs him because he's carrying a whole bunch of like rolled up papers mm-hmm. and stuff like that's that true. which aren't with him when he walks in okay. here so they they made a pit stop somewhere they picked up a book that happens to have Brody pictures of everything you could possibly want to see. Relevant yeah. material here. Yeah. Let me let me grab my portable Bible. Right. <laughs> From the outside, this this book is an actual Dutch version of the Bible. But uh, regular Star Wars contributor Ralph McQuarrie did provide the illustration of the Ark scene in the book. The picture shows beams of light emanating from the Ark, destroying entire armies. Dr. Jones suggests that the beams are the embodiment of the wrath of God. Brody ends the scene on an ominous note. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. We dissolve to Dr. Jones's house that night. Brody has stopped by to inform him that the assignment is now official, and they would like him to track down the Ark before the Nazis can. The way this scene was written initially, Jones is dressed up fancy, because he was entertaining a student, probably the Love You student, and she was supposed to be leaving just as Marcus entered, but they decided to kind of wipe clean a lot of the womanizing that he does. Not all of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was say, right? they, they definitely missed a spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> missed a spot. Jones asks Brody if the Ark will be turned over to Brody's museum if he's successful, and Brody half-heartedly confirms, but when Jones turns away to pack, we can see on Brody's face that he's fibbing a bit to encourage his friend. Jones's plan starts with locating Abner, but he seems interested in finding more than Abner. So she'll still be with him? Possibly. Marion's the least of your worries right now, believe me. Brody reminds Jones to keep his eyes on the prize. The Ark has eluded historians for thousands of years, and he can't let an old flame get in the way. Brody gets real serious here describing the Ark and its mystical nature, but Jones laughs it off, reminding Brody that he doesn't subscribe to that mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> Marcus! What are you trying to do? Scare me? You sound like my mother. We've known each other for a long time. I don't believe in magic, a lot of superstitious hocus-pocus. To allay Brody's fears, Jones tosses a gun in his suitcase as proof of the caution he intends to exercise. (laughs) And the lacks of TSA in the 1930s. (laughs) We cut to a dock where a matte painting of a Pan American seaplane is being loaded with cargo and passengers. It's probably just supposed to look like a plane, though. A couple women wander dangerously close to a spinning propeller in the establishing shot, possibly foreshadowing later events in the film. Aside from the slight outline, what betrays the effect as a matte painting is that the plane and its wing have no reflection in the water (laughs) that they're parked in. We see Dr. Jones climb stairs to the second story of the plane, where he takes a seat near a man who peeks through glasses over the edge of his Life magazine, appearing to recognize Jones but making no conversation. Somehow it's clear already that this man is a Nazi spy, but I don't know why. Jones pulls his fedora down over his eyes to nap on the plane, and we dissolve to stock footage of planes in the air. Superimposed over the footage is a turn-of-the-century world map, and a red line traces out the flight path. 
It takes off from San Francisco, like literally right over the Golden Gate Bridge, across the Pacific to Hawaii, connecting across to the Philippines, and then up to Nepal. We dissolve to a bar in snow in the mountains of Nepal. A large crowd surround a small wooden table where Marion Ravenwood is deep into a drinking contest with a large man credited as Australian Climber. So maybe he just climbed up here, and he still has the energy to drink like this with her. The guy takes a double shot to his lips and then slams a 20th glass down on the table. Did you actually count these? No. <laughs> Marion takes a shot in turn and sways a bit. Money starts to change hands in the crowd until Marion announces she's not down for the count. She claps her shot glass down as well. The large man's hand clumsily fumbles for the shot glass, and he manages to get it past his lips before tipping slowly into the crowd, falling out of his chair. Now, to me, she should still have to take a drink. Right. Well, sense. Unless... not necessarily, because if he goes down on the same shot that she accepted last time, which mm. he, he yeah, did... Yeah, we don't know. We've just seen them doing it back and forth. We That's don't true. know the order. Oh, yeah, I guess we don't know. I don't yeah, know. We, we don't know who won. But it seems like she did, because she goes around collecting her money. She also seems instantly sober somehow. She corrals the patrons out of her bar and begins closing up for the night. She grips her head in pain and turns to face a wall where she finds the enormous shadow of our hero, made obvious by the silhouette of his fedora. She knows immediately who is here to see her. Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. She asks why he's here, and before he can finish his sentence, she throws a huge right cross and catches him in the chin. It's been a decade since they last saw each other, and in that time, she has learned to hate him. The accepted ages of these characters are 37 for Indiana Jones and 25 for Marion, implying that when they last met, he was 27 and she was 15. Oh. But it could have been worse. Here's an excerpt from the Raiders Story Conference transcript. We're reading scene one. I'll be George Lucas, Jesse is Lawrence Kasdan, and Richard, you are Spielberg. Oh, God. Jesse's script. Oh, this is why you didn't show me this ahead of time, huh? I highlighted your line, Jesse. Okay. You as well, Richard. I don't know how to do... Um, Lawrence Kasdan, just Lauren, talk. It's okay. fine. Nobody does. <laughs> I, I, I imagine he sounds like this. I That's have it. no idea. He sounds like an angry Italian woman. <laughs> That's it. I was thinking that this old guy could have been his mentor. He could have known this little girl when she was just a kid, had an affair with her when she was 11. And he was 42. He hasn't seen her in 12 years. Now she's 22. It's a real strange relationship. She better be older than 22. He's 35, and he knew her 10 years ago when he was 25, and she was only 12. It would be amusing to make her slightly young at the time. And promiscuous. She came on to him. 15 is right on the edge. I know it's an outrageous idea, but it's interesting. Once she's 16 or 17, it's not interesting anymore. But if she was 15 and he was 25 when they met, and they actually had an affair the last time they met, and scene. Um, no. No, it's not interesting. I mean, he implied 10 there for, for one line. He said he hasn't seen her in 12 years, now she's 22. Indy isn't even remotely apologetic, and instead does a bit of victim blaming here. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Which is just a weird choice from a character they were uncomfortable showing drinking in their development meetings because they wanted him to be a role model. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but maybe we can help each other out now. He describes to her the head of the staff of Ra, a medallion which he claims that her father was once in possession of. 
This is our clue that she is the daughter of Abner Ravenwood. And the reason that the professor and he are no longer on speaking terms is because Indy raped his daughter. She tells Indy that Abner is dead. And though it is never explicitly stated in the film, a line in the script apparently spells out Abner's fate as having died in an avalanche. I, but I imagine, like, based on the fact that they were okay with this relationship, that Abner was not actually mad about rape. He was mad that he this left. guy didn't stick around to be with his daughter because his daughter loved him. Oh, I didn't take it that way. I took it that he was mad that he was with his daughter at all. Oh. Because his daughter was a child. No, I don't. I I don't think that that That's is. That's true. The case. In 1936, he was just like, oh, a perfectly aged man for you. Right, but he didn't stick around. That's yeah. the problem. Marion admits to recognizing the piece he's looking for, but won't commit to knowing where it is. He assures her it's worthless, but he seems desperate to find it and offers her five thousand dollars in 1936 bucks, which translates to about a hundred thousand today. He puts three thousand in her hand and promises an additional two when he gets back to Washington. She tells him to come back tomorrow if he wants the medallion, and he agrees to. As she sits alone in her bar, she pulls the headpiece of the Staff of Ra out of her shirt on a necklace. She hangs the piece on a candle in the middle of a table and tucks away the money Indy gave her. Suddenly, the double doors of her bar are pushed open by a short German man and three apparent henchmen. A chill blows through the place with the opening of the doors. He speaks in a weaselly German accent, but it also kind of sounds a little bit like Old Man Lopan in Big Trouble in Little China to me. <laughs> yeah, so so Ronald uh, Ronald Lacey, like, it's weird. I know he's supposed to be German, but the very round glasses yeah. seem very stereotypical of, of A Jap younger Chinese Japan. character, yeah. Yeah, at the time. Um, and he's just very squinty. Yeah. And, and But the voice that he's doing here, even. Good evening, Fraulein. The bar is closed. We are... We are... Not thirsty. This man's name is Tote, which is German for death and English for small bag. <laughs> he tells her that he's here for the same piece as Indy, and she asks if he's willing to outbid her former flame. One of Tote's henchmen here is in distinctively regrettable yellow face prosthetics. There's some disturbing talk in the story conference about the casting of people of various races. Here's another excerpt. Scene two. I'm George Lucas, Richard your Spielberg again. <clears throat> He could be French or Italian. No, Italians are too crazy. He could be an Arab, one of those weasel-faced, thin-mustache Arab professors. Like Omar Sharif. I can't think of many Arabs who are actors. And scene. I think what bothers me most about this part is that they explain away casting a white person as another race with lines like, I can't think of any Arabs who are actors. Like, isn't that what a casting director is for? They put out the call, and then you audition people for a part. Do you have to be able to name every actor off the top of your head? And it doesn't need to be Omar Sharif. Right. Well, but that's the that's the cyclical nature of of what was going on. It's like I, we don't I, yeah. we don't cast Arab actors, so now I don't know the names of any Arab actors. Right, exactly. So we don't cast any of them. And I know times are different, but it just seems lazy to be like I can't think of one off the top of my head. So we literally aren't going to cast anyone born on that shape of the planet. Like, just tell your person that finds you actors that you're looking for someone of this nationality, and then bring in hundreds of qualified people who want to be in a Spielberg movie. So. Was this for the for the for the Tote character? No, for like the henchman characters. I oh. think I think it was actually the Belloc casting when they had that part of the conversation. Oh, really? And they ended up going with a white guy. But they they're saying Italian or French and they went French. Yeah, they did. But it's just they they were like, "Well, he could be Arab." And they're like, "I don't know any Arabs." There's literally only one Arab actor, so let's not hire that one guy and just go with another random French person. 
Marion is reticent to tell these men that she knows where it is because she can tell they're dangerous. Tote starts digging through her fireplace with a poker until it's red hot and then instructs his men to hold her still beside the bar. This is where we get our best look at the fake Asian makeup and it looks like they just scraped it right off of Peter Sellers' corpse and plopped it onto this guy's head. Tote's face is glossy with a sheen of sweat and as he approaches Marion with the red hot poker, both of their faces glow. But before he can brand her with it, we hear the crack of a whip and it's yanked dramatically from his hand across the room. Unfortunately for Marion, it comes to rest just below a curtain which is immediately engulfed in flames. A shootout ensues between Indy and the men, and one of them tips over the table where the medallion had been draped over a candle. This is one of my favorite things, Indiana Jones style, is the sounds, the Foley sounds for punching and the Foley sounds for gunshots. Yeah, they're great. Uh, they're not any kind of typical sound that you generally hear. Yeah, and they're they're all custom Foley for the movie, and I'll go over what each one is at the end when we're talking about the the sound effects designer. One gunshot through the fireplace in the center of the room knocks flaming logs out onto the floor, and the table doused in alcohol is quick to go up in a sheet of fire. We see the medallion sitting amongst the flames. Indy shoots the fake Asian man in the middle of his forehead, and we see it explode and blood gush down his face. Pretty graphic for a movie that a five-year-old could buy a ticket to. <laughs> Marion collects one of the flaming logs and approaches a gunman behind the bar. A small keg is shot through a corner, causing a waterfall of alcohol, and Marion takes a swig before she takes action. Keeping in mind that she just did a drinking contest yeah. like yeah. 30 not thirsty minutes right ago. now. <laughs> Marion knocks the man behind the bar unconscious, while the biggest of Tote's henchmen picks up Indy and throws him up on the bar top. A puddle of alcohol stretches to the opposite end of the bar, where Tote ignites the puddle, and the camera follows the flames all the way back to Indy. He can see Marion hiding behind the bar and asks for a whiskey bottle with which to bash the biggest henchman over the head. Whiskey. Tote, not wanting to waste the opportunity, tells his last available henchman with a machine gun to kill Indy and the big guy. Indy wrestles his gun over and shoots the idle henchman dead. Well, hold on. So the, this is one of my favorite moments is yeah. that the thug and Indy work together to aim the gun <laughs> oh, I thought I thought the thug was fighting against him because he was just trying to keep the gun in his own hand, but Indy forced it. No, it it, it seems if, if you watch it closely, it's they looks, shoot the guy together. They look like they're like, oh crap, hang Let's on, take care of this guy so that we can continue this fight. Yeah. While Indy and the big guy wrap up their fight, Tote sees the medallion and tries to collect it, only to find that it is scalding hot and it burns several layers of skin off his hand before he drops it. I thought it might have melted in the fire or been deformed by squeezing it, but this thing is supposed to be bronze, so I guess it would have been okay. Tote rushes out into the snow like Joe Pesci in Home Alone and buries his hand in the ice. While Indy finishes off the biggest henchman, the guy behind the bar regains consciousness and levels a gun at him. Just when it seems he'd pull the trigger, we hear a gunfire, and the man drops dead to reveal Marion armed with her own gun behind him. Understanding now the importance of the medallion, Marion is sure to grab it before leaving the bar, which collapses in their wake. As the wind howls past them, Marion announces that she's not just handing over the medallion, that she's joining him on this quest. Until I get back my $5,000, you're gonna get more than you bargained for! I'm your goddamn partner! We dissolve to an Air East India plane for another flight montage as our red line is cast out of Nepal, over India, making a stop in Karachi, before swinging over Iran, connecting in Baghdad, and just over Jordan and Palestine before its destination in Cairo. We see John Rice davies as Salah, 
leading Indy and Marion to the rooftop of his home. There's another, there's another casting that's like, well, I can't think of any Egyptian yeah. uh, actors, so let's just uh, cast a British guy. <laughs> I forgot John Rice davies was ever this thin. And I think he's legitimately cute here. Like, he's an adorable guy in this movie. I really love the way they photographed all these rooftops in Cairo because it's obviously practical. So it's just a really nice panorama. On the same balcony, Sala's children, eight or nine of them, are laughing hysterically crowding around a monkey. Indy is here to see Sala because Sala is his local connection for organizing digs. Sala informs him that Hitler's people have bought up every local digger for embarrassingly low pay. It's as if the pharaohs had returned. Sala knocks the men organizing the dig, but thinks highly of at least one man. By coincidence, he is referring to Indy's rival, Belloc, but Sala mispronounces the name. What's his name? Well, we call him Balosh. <laughs> Belloc. Belloc. Sala worries aloud that the Germans are closing in on the Well of Souls, the final resting place of the Ark, but Indy assures him that without the medallion, they will never find it. Sala would rather nobody found it, because some things shouldn't be found. The Ark. If it is there, Tanis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Death has always surrounded it. It is not of this earth. We cut to Indy and Marion in the marketplace, and he's already sick of this stupid monkey. Luckily for Indy, the monkey chooses a random alleyway to jump off her back and scamper off into the distance. There's a funny line here. Indy's trying to distract her from the loss of the monkey by handing her a date from a local food cart, mm -hmm. and she doesn't even know what it is. Yeah. And he responds in the least Indiana Jones voice that we hear for the whole movie. It's a date. You eat them. <laughs> We see the monkey continue on its mission until it reaches a man waiting on a stoop with an eye patch. He's being played here by Vic Tablian, the same actor whose hand Indy whipped a gun out of at the start of the film. Obviously, this is a different character because we saw that guy collapse as a curare pincushion. The one-eyed man is cornered by Germans and offers a sig heil for their approval. The monkey also contributes his support to the Fuhrer. This particular monkey salute took 50 takes, and when their initial plan, smacking the monkey in the head, Proved ineffective, they lured his hand into the air with a grape on a fishing line. <laughs> it's much nicer. George Lucas actually directed this shot himself, and it's one of Spielberg's favorites from the film. With the smacking the monkey? <laughs> Woof. <laughs> I'm going to unpack that. <laughs> no, the grape take. I think he did all of them. Yeah. George Lucas watched a bunch of guys spank a monkey. I didn't say spank. Smack is the same thing. <laughs> I was supposed to smack it. I just think that it's a weird thing to be proud of. Be like, what? Well, you don't. It's not getting smacked in the shot. He's saying in the final cut of the film, he likes that the monkey does a sig hail. That's okay. all. Okay, I, I, I guess I get that. I'm, yeah. I, I'm just saying, like, if I'm gonna say, it wasn't his favorite shot to get. I, I'm so proud of this shot where we whacked a monkey fifty times. Oh my god, you switched to whacked. <laughs> That's much better. <laughs> I can't think of a good term. Oh my God, get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> they release the one-eyed man who sends a signal to another German on a balcony across the marketplace. As they shop, Marion begins to bring up some of their old problems. It sounds like Abner clocked him as unreliable and warned her as much. She reminds Indy that Abner was always impressed by his skills and loved him like a son. But before they can explore these comments any further, they are ambushed by the henchmen of the local Germans. 
I feel like I wouldn't want my son See? to marry my daughter. Well, yes, but I think this I think this supports the idea that the only reason Abner was mad at him was because he left. Okay. And so he's like, how dare you do that? I'm out of here. <laughs> I guess he brought her with him, so it's different. Indy and Marion knock a lot of these swordsmen out with punches, but a few are tricked into stabbing each other. Indy tosses Marion to the ground to save her. <laughs> it doesn't look like saving. One of the men pierces another through the belly, and as the camera moves around them, we see that the blade came out of the man's back and stabbed into several fruits from a cart, which then fall off when the killer retrieves his sword. I liked that moment. It reminds me of that one uh, Mario Party game where you have to stab fruit with a sword. <laughs> <laughs> off the side of the boat yeah. or whatever? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, you just about. got a couple of lemons hanging off the end of your That's sword. That's right. Indy tosses Marion into a trailer full of hay and uses his whip to keep more henchmen at bay. And that rhymes. The horse hears the whip and starts racing through the marketplace and the Germans are quick to follow her. She fends off one man with a pot, eventually knocking him unconscious, and then diving into a woven basket with a lid. The it's monkey... a pan. No, it was a woven basket. She wouldn't <laughs> fit in a pan. No, it's the po- it wasn't a pot, it was a pan. Pots are just deep pans. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a, a pot is the pan but a pan's not a pot the monkey stands on top of it <laughs> the monkey stands on top of it and screams to get the attention of the nazis indy is panicking trying to locate her when he realizes she's no longer in the hay i i like that the germans are like hey wait hold on the monkey's got something yeah like, like immediately like yeah. they, they don't even question it. as soon as they hear a screech they tur- they all turn around a crowd parts ways to reveal a seven foot tall swordsman in a black cloak This man is played by Terry Richards, the famous stuntman. As I'm sure you already know, the cast and crew were ravaged with cases of amoebic dysentery, and rather than take part in the planned three-day sword fight shoot, Harrison asked for permission to just shoot the guy, and Stephen approved, despite being the only one on set not actively shitting himself. Apparently Spielberg packed a suitcase of SpaghettiOs for the production and lived off of them exclusively throughout the shoot. So he's the only person who didn't get sick. One of the locals is quick to rob the dead man of his sword and then holds it in the air like he accomplished something. Indy notices a pair of men carrying a basket with hands sticking out from under the lid. Important to note that the lid is tied down, which is why Marion can't push the lid off and jump out on her own. He follows the sounds of her screams until he comes around a corner and face to face with 30 men carrying baskets, but he could narrow them down quickly by only knocking over the ones whose lids are tied down, which was like four of them. When he notices that he's missed a basket, he chases after it, but is met with machine gun fire, which draws a line in the dirt across the street in front of him. I like that none of the, uh, I want to say that they are all beggars, but there's a row of people just sitting down on the road. Yeah. And all this machine gun fire is going off and they're just like, they don't care. Nah. I imagine what this was, was locals that they could not get to go away. Right. Like, like it's just, just let them stand there. that's how they tried to scare them away with gunfire and they still sat there they're like all right fine you're in the shot indy ducks for safety around a corner as marion's basket is loaded into the back of a truck carrying just dynamite and guns that's all it has (laughs) as the truck blows past him indy shoots a passenger and the driver and then the runaway truck ramps off an embankment and tips over before exploding The truck actually only tipped up on its corner and stuck like that because the stunt didn't work right. So in the next shot, we see it finish falling over. Indy is devastated at the sight of the flaming truck and we cut right to him getting drunk with the monkey. Behind Indy, two white dudes in denim pants are walking by and Spielberg is still furious about the anachronism. 
I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Marion is still alive, but I do think that it's important to mention because in this scene, she clearly could not have escaped the truck without us noticing it. Yeah, I, I, I still don't understand the switch. Yeah. Like, clearly her involvement in the rest of the movie was planned. It wasn't like like a like an afterthought, like like after a test screening, they go, oh, we're really sad that Marion died. It's like, oh, we should have him yeah. ever be alive. Yeah. But I don't get the switch. I don't get why they would have pretended to switch. Because we can tell she's in it when she's on the truck. Yeah. And she doesn't fall out of it. And the truck immediately tips over and explodes. Yeah. And when, you know, spoiler alert, later when he finds her, he says they must have switched baskets. Like, yeah. they, like they had done it intentionally to trick him? Yeah. It's weird. Or to make him think, make her, make him think she's dead. It's like, oh, we had another yeah, girl in a basket. They weren't, ex- they weren't planning to explode. That's true. Maybe they were. There's a lot of bombs if you're not planning to explode. <laughs> I'm just going to drive this truck with explosives in it. As a getaway car. <laughs> yeah. like, this is great. We'll just blow up the basket that my sister is in and he'll think it's his girlfriend. Two birds with one stone. Even if she had like fallen out of the truck or like rolled away in the basket, we would still hear her screaming for Indy because she was doing that the whole time. We see the monkey man pull up on a motorcycle and park. Suddenly, two Germans are leading Indy to a man who wishes to speak with him. He finds Belloc in a hookah bar and threatens to kill him on the spot for Marion's death. So when he first walks into this bar, Belloc is sitting there puffing on a, on a hookah and holding the watch, uh, holding a Already. watch. Already, like very dramatically waiting for Indy to turn around and see him. Yeah. And I just like, he's like, come on, it's gonna be great. Just turn around and you're going to be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) The two archeologists do a bit of polite ribbing, but eventually Rene Balak makes an interesting point. You and I are very much alike. Archeology span is our religion. Yet we have both fallen from the pure faith. Our methods have not differed as much as you pretend. I am a shadowy reflection of you. Don't take only a nudge to make you like me, to push you out of the light. Now you're getting nasty. You know it's true. Belloc holds up the watch as an example. He says that if he buries it in the sand, it will be worth an untold fortune in a thousand years, despite being worthless now. He says it's worthless now, but it says it costs $10. It's a $200 watch today. Yeah. That's not worthless. It didn't even take a thousand years. It's worth a lot of money now. He compares it to the Ark, which has been hidden long enough now that men are willing to kill each other for it. But the metaphor is also a little fumbled because he immediately admits that the Ark has an inherent value, unlike the watch. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. And it's within my reach. I feel like if I were a god, I would be very careful about who I let near my transmitter that could reach me. Yeah. Yeah. Or just don't answer. (laughs) Yeah. Also, isn't God everywhere? Can't he hear everything all the time? What's this, like sliding into God's DMs? Maybe he only gets notifications for Ark of the Covenant messages? (laughs) Indy has heard enough from Belloc and reaches for his gun, when a dozen men around him all point rifles at Indy. Before anyone has a chance to use their weapon, Sala's children quickly form a human shield around Indiana Jones to help him escape the hookah bar unshot, monkey in hand. That's a pretty bold assumption that nobody is going to shoot yeah. your children. These yeah. are Nazis. Why are they <laughs> holding their fire? Well, the Nazis are running the show, but these are all local That's hired true. guns. Yeah, yeah. So. 
Indy informs Sala that Marion is dead, and weirdly Sala says, I know, when he couldn't possibly <laughs> know that. Especially since, as I spoiled earlier, it's not true. But, like, who went and told Sala before Indy got there? That's weird. Or was did he just improvise it? He was like, remember when you said, I know, in Empire? I'll say it now. <laughs> Sala says that they will drive his children home and then meet with a man who can read the head of the staff. We see the monkey man ride his motorcycle off into the distance. In the kitchen of Sala's home, we see a little person filling a bowl with dates, but when he leaves the bowl unattended, Monkey Man sneaks in and pours a fluid over the dates. Is this Sala's home? I thought it was the home of the old man. Oh, you're right. It is. Yeah. While Sala's friend investigates the headpiece, Sala informs Indy that the Germans seem to have a replica of the piece. Unfortunately for them, their replica only represents one side of it, though. At the start of the scene, we see Indiana grab one of the dates and then he walks around with it in his hand for a while, upping the tension a bit. The monkey also notices the dates and takes one. Sala's friend tells them that the message on one side of the headpiece says, don't even think about disturbing that Ark of the Covenant, but if you were thinking about it, here's exactly where you can find it. It specifies that the attached staff should be six kadam high, which equates to 72 inches, because apparently one kadam is exactly one foot. But when the man flips the medallion in his hands, an inscription on the back gives instructions to subtract one kadam to honor the Hebrew God. A smile crosses Indy's face as he realizes that if the Nazis only have one half of the inscription, then their staff is too tall. They're, They're digging, digging in the, the wrong place. place. Okay, so let's, yeah, so <laughs> if you're trying to protect something, why would you write on the key to finding that something exactly where and how to put that key yeah. in the lock? You shouldn't have made this headpiece if you wanted the thing secret. But also, were you trying to be tricky? By putting that information in two different places, you're like, okay, we're going to definitely put it on this thing. So if you have this, you'll also have those other bits of information. Mm -hmm. But you got to be smart enough to look at both sides. Yeah, because on the back, <laughs> it'll be like, JK, it's over here. <laughs> Sala launches into a song. I am the monarch of the sea. A line from Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore from the song Give Three Cheers. And Indy tosses his date above his head. We watch it float in slow motion like the Space Odyssey femur until Sala snatches it out of the air above Indy's open mouth. With a serious look, he gestures to the dead monkey and the implication that someone has tried to poison them. Bad dates. Uh, I like the shot of the above the fan shot. Yeah. Because there's a ceiling, uh, a ceiling fan, but the camera angle is behind that. So the fan is in the foreground. Yeah. Um, it's it, a very like Citizen Kane shot because they must have like just hung a, a fake ceiling fan below the camera right um but i also wanted the camera to like to pull out even further and you just see like the dead boy oh, <laughs> who no. would serve oh. the dates <laughs> well it's not a, a boy it's a little person it's oh, okay. an adult yeah is it I yeah it was a child i thought that too but it's not oh based on his more recent appearances same height we cut to the nazi dig in full swing belloc reprimands a german dietrich for the premature communique that brought indiana to the region it sounds like Hitler is getting impatient with the dig, but Belloc insists that archaeology is not an exact science, and he made no promises. Indy and Sala make their way through the dig site, disguised in robes and turbans. Sala leads Indy to the map room of Tanis, which is unfortunately circled in a barbed wire fence. But lucky for them, it's only 18 inches tall for some reason, so they could just step over it handily. How many kadams is that? 
Uh, Kadam and, and a half. half. <laughs> Indy drops the five foot staff into the hole and we get an inexplicably crappy special effects shot of the stick falling into the rum. But the stick just slides through like a poochy animation cell with no movement whatsoever. <laughs> but also, I, I want him to get down there and the stick's just broken in half. Yeah. He's like, ah, crap. Why did I do that? I was going to come down slowly on my own. Could have just kept the stick in my waistband or something. But the cane falling into the chamber looks like a flash animation. Like it's literally just stick slides directly yeah. downward. And it's a, it's a real stage. They clearly just forgot to get the shot of the stick going in but do you need it no i don't think so we saw him drop it i just was like okay he dropped it in it's in there yeah what's in there indy wears a rope around his waist and sala mans the opening as a lookout on the other end of the rope i also like how they try to do this really nonchalant yeah like like mm -hmm, throwing the rope and then sala's trying to brace himself just like in a pose like you guys are standing in the middle of a ring of barbed wire people are going to notice you standing here Inside, Indy finds a board in the floor with thousands of peg marks in it. Did you count them? Exactly a thousand. (laughs) I don't think there's anywhere near a thousand. I don't friggin' know. Two German soldiers notice and begin shouting at Sala, and he pretends not to understand them before clumsily falling down the hill. I don't know what the point of that was. I I think probably just to make him seem foolish and and like to distract them from like, hey, what was that guy doing up? Oh, who cares? He's an idiot. He can't even walk. Indy sweeps the pegboard clear of sand to read an inscription. He compares a symbol to a notebook he brought with him. On closer inspection, he sees that not only did the Germans use the wrong staff height, but they also plugged it into the wrong peg hole. Not true. You gotta plug it into a different hole because the sun's in a different position. Oh, is that how it works? So, so it's every like peg day. is the right hole. It's just yeah. a matter of what the, time of day you put Yeah, I, I figure what he's doing is he's looking for the symbols for the time of year in the days uh, okay because that and that's why so there's like a, it's like a calendar and you put yeah. it in the right spot so right. the the germans just did it earlier enough that it was a different hole for correct them. okay that makes sense the sun is just about lined up now with the window in the ceiling indy puts the medallion on the top of the staff and the staff in the proper hole and a beam of light moves through the room and the focal point of the gem in the headpiece comes to rest on the central chamber of the central structure of the city. What a terrible fucking hiding place. <laughs> Did nobody think to look there first? Maybe the treasure's in the treasure chest shaped thing, smack dab in the yeah. middle of the biggest building in the city. <laughs> also, like, even just by process of elimination, you know it will have to be in line with the center of the map. Right. Because that's where all the pegs are. <laughs> yeah. It's not like there's pegs all over the room and you just don't know which one to put it in. Yeah. Because they even have a tape measure. There's already a tape measure running across the map. Right. And so it's just like they know it's somewhere on this line. Right. Just, just dig in a straight line for a yeah. while. Outside, Sala is looking for something to improvise a rope from after the Germans apparently took his away. Indy cracks the stick in half so the Germans can't possibly recreate it. (laughs) I say, for example, holding the two halves together and measuring. (laughs) He calls for Sala to lower the rope, but receives in its place a rope of blankets with a Nazi flag at the end. How did he steal that from this group without getting caught? Well, he he like he tucks himself into like a tent for a little while, yeah. and then comes back out with. A bunch <laughs> I just of stuff, assumed I he took this flag off of one of the jeeps, and it's like you got caught standing there by that hole, but you didn't get caught ripping a swastika off of a jeep or something. Also, is it easier to find a flag and tie flags together than to find more rope at this dig site? Apparently, they use more flags. That's why they're nationalists. I I just like it would have been fun. Like I get like the whole concept is like oh it's funny it's like a not funny but it's yeah. like a gag almost it's like because oh. they're just inherently funny 
What? <laughs> Cutting that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Moving back through the dig site, Indy ducks into a tent seemingly at random and happens upon Marion, alive, bound, and gagged. After a tearful reunion and a quick kiss, Indy flips open a blade to cut her loose but catches himself. He decides that it's safer for his mission to leave her here and maintain the secret that he has visited the site himself. She is understandably furious as he puts the gag back in her mouth. From up on a hill, we see Indy using a transit scope to determine the current location of the target structure from the map room, and it's maybe 100 feet from the German dig site. Dietrich suggests to Belloc that perhaps they could speed up the dig by torturing their prisoner for information, but Belloc is surprisingly protective of Marion. Dietrich even has a specific torturer in mind. Out of the dust for the dig site, Tote approaches the man, and when he raises his hand for a we can see that half of the medallion is indelibly scarred in the flesh of his hand, explaining the half medallion that the Germans were able to create. So I get that you now have the information about, in theory, the height of the staff, which we know is incorrect, um, and that you could probably get a, a cast off of this. But I feel like the part that you cannot replicate exactly would be the stone, right. the gem, in the middle of this thing, which presumably, depending on how it was cut and positioned, would not reflect light the same way as the one that's in the actual uh, headpiece. I don't even know which side you're supposed to point at the sun. Does it say on the thing? Uh, I mean... Because wouldn't that affect the refraction? I, yes, but... Still, just dig in the big building. Yeah. End of discussion. <laughs> This building that you've already marked with yeah. this line. How has this whole site not been already explored completely? Well, and we'll see later that when they exit the Well of the Souls, they have yeah. they have found yeah, it. Yeah, it's above ground. <laughs> you found this big building and you didn't look inside? Yeah. Instead of waiting until nightfall, or maybe even a few months, Indy and Sala lead a full dig team to the proper location of the Well of Souls. They begin digging in a clear sightline of the Nazi dig. Yeah. This is such a terrible idea. But at the same time, what better way to hide your digging efforts than to look like part of their dig? Than to dig when everyone else is digging, as Maybe. opposed to dig in the middle of the night when you're like, why are they still digging? I guess they only get caught when they're digging and the other people aren't. Exactly. That's true. As the sun sets, we see Indy and his team silhouetted hard at work. Well, most of them are. Looks like Indy's just watching them. It's a similar angle from something we saw in Charlton Heston's The Awakening last year. Also, though, if you're trying to blend in with the other diggers, maybe you shouldn't switch into your classic Indiana Jones fedora. <laughs> yeah. It just makes him look like he's operating a chain gang up there. He's just like, oh, we got a failure to communicate up here. <laughs> Take my shirt off, boss. Taking it off. <laughs> we cut tonight on a flash of lightning, and we swap out a location shoot for a clear stage. The comp work of the stormy sky over the stage almost looks like something out of the Ten Commandments, and maybe that's on purpose. Sala calls to Indy when the team hits a stone surface. They clear the dirt from the lid of the Well of Souls and bring pry bars in to lift the top off the chamber. Pressurized air seems to blast out from under the stone lid, and Indy watches in an almost crazed excitement as lightning continues to flash above them. The chamber is maybe five stories deep, and another lightning flash illuminates a huge Anubis statue, which frightens Sala. Ah! This chamber actually appeared last year as the tall central stage of the Overlook Hotel lobby in The Shining. It's the same room. They recognize together that the floor of the well is completely carpeted in snakes. Snakes. 
Why did it have to be snakes? Asps. Very dangerous. You go first. Now, what are these snakes eating besides each other? Well, I think the snakes can get in and out of the temple. I think mm. they're just in here so they don't boil alive during the day. Mm. And my asps. <laughs> we cut back to Belloc's tent where he has brought dinner for himself and Marion. She awakens as he unties her. He informs her running away is useless as the desert is three weeks in every direction. But I don't think that's true. That can't be true because, because they're going to drive to Cairo. Yeah. Marion is clearly starving and doesn't pause to speak between mouthfuls. She notices she's been provided silverware, including a sharp knife. Belloc presents her with a gift of a white dress and demands she try it on immediately, including high heels, even though the floor of the tent is clearly sand. He turns away to give her privacy, but then watches her change in a small mirror. She reappears in the dress, and as she approaches Belloc, she places her previous outfit over the knife on the table. This whole scene was basically improvised to get Karen Allen into a dress, because she was written as appearing in a dress a few scenes later, and they just needed a reason for her to change into a mm. dress. Screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan had intended for this scene to play more like a legitimate romance between Marion and Belloc with a mutual attraction, but many scenes were trimmed to drop that storyline. The novelization retains that aspect of their relationship, whereas in the film, it's a one-sided interest. I don't know if I agree that it's a one-sided yeah. interest. You think she's into him? I, she, she says so. She yeah. says... So I like you, Renee. Yeah, you know. she, she says it to Renee, though. Yeah. She's just trying to get away. Well, she's know. already gotten away at that point. She's already got the knife, and she's making her way out. Maybe she's just excited because his staff is a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a uh, a private label, so... That's true. He's got know. some money. Indy slides down a second rope today into the Well of Souls in the center of a pack of snakes who seem to make room for several torches that the team has dropped into the well. Indy loses his grip and falls the last several feet into the chamber, landing face-to-face -face with a snarling King Cobra, clearly separated by a sheet of glass in earlier versions of the film, but slightly touched up now so that it actually looks like he's right there with the snake. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you can still see the reflection of the snake in the glass, but what's cool I, is that- I think you see it more when Marion is yeah, coming down. Yeah, because of the white dress. Yeah. yeah but, but it's cool that it's a real snake and they just- and it's the real actors, they just have a plane of glass. Yeah. I Even with a plane of glass, I would just be like ready to run if that snake decides to come around the other oh, side. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of violence towards snakes in the next couple of scenes too. Yeah. Indy uses a hand pump to douse the writhing pit in gasoline and set fire to a huge knot of snakes. This scene took forever to get right because they had to source snakes from all over the country to fill this room and they struggled with a shortage of antivenom with so many dangerous species on set. When Kubrick's daughter Vivian visited Elstree during the shoot, she was very disturbed by the treatment of the snakes on set, some of whom had been stepped on or killed, and she called the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, who had to come and assess the set for safety. Back in the tent, Marion has decided to play to her strength. She engages in a drink-off with Belloc. In the well, Indy and Sala somehow lift a two-ton stone lid from the Ark of the Covenant. This is where R2-D2 and C-3PO get their cameos in the form of hieroglyphics on a post to Indy's right, suggesting officially, canonically, that Star Wars takes place in our universe and that these characters have visited Earth some time ago. When they toss the lid to the side, it cracks into several pieces, but who cares about artifacts? Not this guy. Back at the tent, Marion is pretending to be much more drunk than she is. 
her go-to strategy, but quickly learns that her scheme was all for naught when Belloc admits that he's basically been drinking this stuff since childhood and has a tolerance that outmatches even hers. Alan worked with Freeman to develop the scene on set, and it was her idea to bring back the drinking contest angle of her character and have it backfire. Oh, really? That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I like I would have thought that was written in. I, I was trying to look up online, but there's like a lot of discussion as to what exactly they are drinking. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm not sure either. It, it's there's, So there's a lot of debate um, that it could be a type of like clear wine, but a lot of people seem to think it's some kind of distilled but unaged spirit. Yeah, that makes yeah, that's, sense. Yeah, that's what I was thinking it was. Whatever it is, it seems like a, a higher alcohol content than just wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, because a, a all bottle of wine is not going to get at them both sloppy right, drunk. Exactly. And they didn't quite finish it. So I would think it's some sort of liquor. And but I'm, but I'm But he is French and you would think that then maybe it is wine. So yeah. it's a good debate. Marion takes a chance and leaps for the knife, inciting another round of laughter from both of them, but as she backs out of the tent, she crashes into Tote, who has been selected by the Nazis to torture her. She runs to Belloc for protection as Tote retrieves nunchucks from a small bag, but Tote folds what looked like nunchucks into a small chain coat hanger for his jacket. Tote sits across from Marion and Belloc to begin questioning. Uh, Tote, like, makes fun of the dress, says that, Americans are always overdressing for the wrong occasions. Yet he's wearing like a tailored three-piece suit <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the desert, and he carries a coat hanger with him. Right? Yeah. What, I, what, do, do you find anything that said what inspired that? Because I think it's just such an interesting. The I, coat hanger bit. Yeah. Well, the coat hanger gag actually comes from a deleted scene from 1941, where Christopher Lee is interrogating Slim Pickens and does the same thing. He pulls out the thing and he makes a coat hanger out of it. And Spielberg liked the joke so much, he said he was going to put it in everything until it stuck. And it stuck in his next film. But it's a funny gag. I like it. No, it's it's mm-hmm. a great gag. I just like, I would imagine the first time I have ever saw that type of coat hanger, which I guess happens to be here. But the first time I, you know, <laughs> if if I had seen it in real life, I'd be like, oh my God, that's I'm sure. crazy. That yeah, looks it like must a weapon. Have, that joke started with... You know, uh, it had to be Steven Spielberg in a hotel room going, "Look at this crazy coat hanger weapon." It's like that's not a that's not a weapon. He's like throwing around, smacks himself <laughs> in the head. In the well, Indy and Sala feed posts through both sides of the ark to carry it. While it isn't spelled out in the film, somewhere in Exodus, it is expressly forbidden to touch or look into the ark. The ark is glowing bright yellow here. The novelization mentions a specific warning on the headpiece not to look directly at the ark. Even though we don't read those words in the I, film. I looked at the arc, Ray. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Together, the men lift the arc, seemingly made of solid gold. They carry it down a snakeless path toward a wooden crate, which they then close up and call for the workmen above to lift out of the hole. First thing in the morning, Belloc... Dietrich and Tote are walking through the German dig site when Belloc notices the commotion on a nearby hill. Indy fends off the last of the snakes while Sala climbs out of the pit in record time. I don't know how he shimmied up that line Mm -hmm. so quick by himself. Ow! I told you no one can climb a rope. It's physically impossible. But the Germans quickly swarm their dig site. When Indy sees the rope fall into the well, he yells for Sala, but a string of Nazi flags comes... No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> Belloc appears. So once again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. They prepare to seal Indy into the well forever. Who knows? 
In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Before closing up the well, Marion is tossed in by Tote and catches the bottom jaw of the Anubis statue before tumbling the rest of the way to the floor, landing, as Indy did, face to face with a snake. She quickly scrambles up onto Indy's shoulders to escape the slithering floor. Snake handler Stephen Edge had to shave his legs to double for Marion's here in a few shots where Alan and even her stunt double refused to stand amongst the snakes. Mm. Belloc is also genuinely, like, upset by this. Yeah, I, like, I don't think he's upset for the right reasons. No, but uh, Belloc is one of those villains where you do kind of like him. Yeah. Like, he, he's he's a bad guy, but he's not the worst guy. But yeah. he's he's working with the Nazis. It's yeah, hard to, no, it's no, hard to yeah. excuse. But, but so were, you know, there were definitely French who were working with the Nazis. But uh, when, they, when they're sealing up the well, Sala is cringing at the last scream of, of Marion, but so is Belloc. Yeah, like they, he, they both think that's the last sound they're going to hear from these people. Yeah. But Sala is sad because his friends are going to die. And Belloc is sad because his sex toy fell yeah. in a hole. Who hasn't had that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you were reaching into our storm drain earlier? Puts the lotion on its skin. <laughs> Belloc is furious with the Germans for throwing his prize down the well. They seal it shut, and Belloc and Sala look equally defeated. Indy and Marion wave torches at the snakes to keep them at bay until Marion mistakes Indy's whip for one and nearly sets him on fire. Indy notices snakes falling out of holes in the wall, meaning there must be another chamber to this structure. Yeah, I... I know when we're watching this scene, it's it's very well lit. Yeah. But you have to imagine from their perspective, they're only seeing the torchlight. And it's fading quickly yeah. because these torches are going out as they're using them. He climbs one of the Anubis statues and is surprised to find a snake in its mouth. He scares it down to the floor with his torch and it lands over Marion's shoulders. At the top of the statue, he gets it rocking with his legs and then sends it crashing through the wall into the second room, loaded with sarcophaguses. Sar- sarcophag- sarcophagi? Marion is briefly relieved to move into the snakeless room, even though it seemed like the snakes were just pouring out of this one, and she keeps crashing headlong into mummy after mummy, screaming all the way. Eventually, it's like cartoon-level mummy crowding, and eight or nine mummies at once all squeeze in around her real tight as a result of her sheer clumsiness. Last, she comes face to face with a corpse just as a massive boa constrictor is slithering out of its mouth. Eventually, Indy finds her, and he leads her to a room with a crack in the wall through which light can be seen. They push an enormous four-foot-by-four-foot-by-four-foot stone boulder <laughs> out of a wall. Did you Did you? Count? I measured it. <laughs> I went to the set, and I measured it. Based on Indy's height. But when he pushes the brick out of the wall, we see the shadow of the rock bouncing on the sand. Mm-hmm. Bizarrely, this exit points directly at a tiny Nazi runway, And in the wide shot, we see that there was a workman leaning against the wall, like one foot away from where this rock just fell out of it. Also that this building is, has been discovered already. Right. But apparently not searched. Right. Despite the large. They built an airport next to it. Yeah. And didn't spend any of their time checking, like checking for loose rocks that they could push out. A plane called the Flying Wing is being started up on what resembles a runway. And Indy understands that they intend to fly the Ark out of the country. He rushes to the plane to attack the pilot, but is interrupted by a mechanic. Suddenly, an enormous bald Nazi notices the fight and whips off his shirt to join the fun. He challenges Indy in German to a bit of fisticuffs, and Indy gives him a gesture like, Hold on, give me a second, I'm coming. (laughs) Like, we'll fight, all right. Marion pulls the blocks from in front of the wheels holding the plane in place. The big Nazi knocks Indy on his ass right away. 
and when he lifts Indy from the ground, Indy bites his arm. The plane's pilot, played by producer Frank Marshall, takes a shot at Indy while the fight continues under the plane. He lines up for a second shot, but the big Nazi gets in his way. Indy tosses a handful of sand in the shirtless man's face, and before the pilot can pull the trigger on his second shot, he is clobbered over the back of the head by Marion with the blocks that were holding the wheels in place. I, I like her face here because she's so proud of herself. Mm-hmm. Like she yeah. showed off to Indy like, look what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more impressed with what she does next. When the pilot falls forward, unconscious in the cockpit, he shoves every lever forward and the plane begins to roll slowly. Marion tries to pull the pilot out and the cockpit closes and locks behind her. When she sees a truckload of Nazi soldiers on approach, she climbs through the plane to its guns and just perforates the whole crowd of Nazis. Yeah. It's amazing. I think she ties his kill count in this movie in this one shot just from killing this whole truckload of Nazis. The spinning plane clips a gas truck, which starts a huge puddle forming. The big Nazi tosses Indy into the path of the moving wheels, and he does a backward somersault to avoid it. Apparently, that didn't work in every take, and in one of them, the wheels actually went over Harrison's legs, tearing a ligament in his left leg and requiring the strength of 40 crew members to move the plane off of him. Oh my God. Because it was so hot at the location, sometimes over 130 degrees, the rubber tires were soft and did no permanent damage to his leg. Ford turned down the offer of a ride to a Tunisian hospital, instead simply wrapping the leg in ice. It's like, I think I'll just do this. I think they stopped down for a couple days, but that all happened. Indy waits for the wheels to pass so he can retrieve the gun he dropped. Marion, still trying to clear the area, fires on a Nazi near a tent loaded with gas cans, and the resulting explosion only draws more Nazis to the airfield. The puddle stretches under the plane now, and Indy struggles to open the bubble over the plane's gun to get Marion out. The big Nazi fights him back to the ground, and their punch fest ends when the propellers finally get close enough to shred the unsuspecting Nazi, throwing his flesh and blood all over the plane's swastika and Marion's gun bubble. By the way, this actor, Pat Roach, was also the giant guy in the bar in Nepal that was beating up Indy until mm. he got killed. Wasn't he also Hephaestus in Clash of the Titans? He was, yeah. In the novel, Indiana punches Pat Roach backward into the propeller instead of waiting for the man to stumble into it on his own. Indy grabs his gun to shoot the lock off the hatch and pull Mary into safety. The filmmaking here is really extraordinary because the plane is spinning at the same rate as we're watching the gas ignite on its way to the gas truck in the background. And Indy and Marion run for their lives as the truck, puddle, and plane explode in rapid succession. Dietrich orders the Ark to be placed on a truck to Cairo immediately. Sala runs toward the explosion until Indy whistles to get his attention from the safety of a small tent. He tells them where the Ark is headed. We see the Ark loaded into a truck against local protestations, and they are quickly on the road to Cairo. Indy says that he's going after the truck, and he tells Sala to meet him at Omar's. Indy steals a horse to follow them, and Harrison seems to ride right over an extra on his way out of the airport. He rides the horse down... (laughs) The airport? Yeah. (laughs) Fancy airport. Gravel circle. Sorry, what did you want me to call it? Indy rides the horse down a very steep rock face toward the caravan, and then leaps from the horse onto the truck carrying the Ark. He throws a Nazi out of the cab and struggles for a bit with the driver, who slams on the brakes. When the last car rear-ends the Ark truck... One of the ARC guards is tossed out of the back with a Wilhelm scream. After steering the truck through some crowded scaffolding along a wall, Indy manages to punch the driver out the driver's side door and over a small cliff. Indy speeds up and tries to run Tote and Belloc off the road, in the process destroying the aqueduct of a helpless village. 
This whole time, the obvious choice would be to slam on the brakes from the front car and slow Indy to a stop, but they never try it. Like, the car in front is just like, if only there was some way we could stop the car behind us. There's no way that car could have stopped that truck. It definitely could have. But I think it's weird that they don't have guns. Because, like, I feel like all of these guys would have guns on them. For some reason, only the back car had guns. Mm -hmm. And shooting forward isn't an option, so... I would think that the front car would also have guns and that they should just be shooting like crazy right now. Yeah. Problem is, they need that truck. After another close call with a truckload of Nazis, Indy nudges them over a cliff, and in the wide shot we see the vehicle flip end over end, hundreds of feet down, and a full stop-motion animated shot. I was going to say, I thought the effects of this shot were particularly good. Yeah, it looked awesome. For the time, it was impressive. The six remaining ARC guards decide it's time to do their job (laughs) and steal back control of the truck from Indy. As they approach him on either side of the car, he notices in his mirrors and quickly sweeps them off with the road's surrounding foliage. Just when Indy thinks he got them all, the second-to-last guy actually fires a shot through the cab and into Indy's arm, spraying blood all over the place. But when we see the blood spray here, they actually used pepper powder Yeah. because the blood wasn't showing up nice on film, and they basically pepper sprayed the whole cab. I always notice in this shot that it was like a powder blood. Yeah, and literally in the next shot where the guy's still hanging on the door and you have a shot through the cab, you can tell Indiana Jones, like Harrison Ford's eyes are blood red like he's just been crying for the last three shots because he basically got pepper sprayed in here indy drags the man along the road until he finally lets go of the truck and the final henchman sees that it is his turn to go over the top of the vehicle to attack he drops in with a swinging kick through the driver's side window and then tosses indy through the windshield onto the front of the truck indy barely catches onto the hood ornament to avoid certain doom but when it bends off he switches to grabbing the bars of the grill The driver tries to crush him against the front car, so Indy lowers himself under the moving car where he jams his whip into the truck's undercarriage and then climbs his way back onto the truck to use all the driver's same moves against him. He kicks him through the window, he tosses him over the hood, but this guy doesn't have as good a grip and he quickly drops beneath the wheels of the car. That's the one that that taught Una a lesson about mortality. I think people die when they get run over. Indy races up alongside the tote bellet car and runs them off the road. When he gets into a small town, he pulls the truck into a storefront labeled Omar's Garage, which quickly folds clothes behind them to hide the truck. The Nazis do a few angry donuts in town, and the people try to sell them fruit. Dietrich grabs some melons and tosses them out of frame, apparently hitting a small dog, (laughs) who we hear whimper. Because someone was worried these Nazis were too sympathetic. Um... So I don't really understand this. Like, did they, so they planned ahead that he's like, I'm going to have a truck and you're going to have to cover it up when I well, get to Well, he town. said, he yeah. said he was going to steal the truck and he said, meet me at Omar's. Right. But like, would you know that that means you have to instantaneously cover the back of a truck going into a garage and, and get everyone in town to pretend like that place doesn't exist? I'm going to assume that they've stolen vehicles before. And if I'd stolen vehicles with this person and I said, I'm going to take this vehicle and I'm going to take it to the garage, that means you cover the front after I get inside. I guess. It just it, it also involved getting like basically a lot of people in That's the square true. to agree yeah. to They're pretend like this doesn't happen. All 30 of these people are Solace kids, so it's fine. Uh, I also like that they kind of did a, another version of this gag in Last Crusade. Right. Where uh, Saul is trying to hide Marcus. He's like, oh, here, get in this, get in this storefront. And, he, and Marcus goes in and then like these guys sweep in and close up a truck and the truck drives away. <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite version. Where yeah. The, instead of the truck turning into a building, the building turns into a truck. The town celebrates when the Nazis leave. That night, we learn from Solid that the Ark 
is on board a ship, the Bantu Wind, I think it's called. So you spent all this time finding an ark that's been lost for thousands of years, and you just, you're just like, hey, by the way, did you load that thing up onto a boat? Like, why did you let it out of your sight at all in this process? Why shouldn't he be sitting next to it the whole I time? I would be like, cool, I got this thing on a truck. Now I'm going to stay with it while we get yeah, it on a boat. That's and true. And then I'm going to stay with it till we get it off a boat. No, they trust people a lot. Sala introduces them to the ship's supposedly trustworthy captain, Mr. Katanga. We rack focus to Katanga as he lights a cigarette in the foreground. Indy and Marion thank Sala for his help, and Marion offers kisses goodbye. That is for fire. That is for your children, and this is for you. I wanted him to go, you know, I have like eight kids, right? (laughs) (laughs) Are they all supposed to split one kiss? Sala is inspired to sing once again. A British tar is a soaring soul as free as a mountain bird. Another bit from Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore. The song also makes an appearance in the film Star Trek Insurrection when Picard sings it to an out-of-control Data to distract him. (laughs) Data was rehearsing a production of HMS Pinafore just before he left. A British tar is a soaring soul, as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fists should be ready to resist a dictatorial word. Sing, Wolf, sing. His nose should pant. And his lips should curl. His cheeks should flame. And his brow should furl. His bosom should heave. And his heart should glow. And his fists be ever ready for a knockdown blow. Bart also uses it to distract Sideshow Bob. (laughs) <laughs> he sings the whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you could sing the entire score of the HMS Pinafore. Very well, Bart. I shall send you to heaven before I send you to hell. We cut to the ship at sea. Marion enters their cabin on the boat with water bowls to treat Indy's wounds. Katanga has gifted her a new dress. Indy compliments the outfit, and Marion moves to a full-length mirror to check it out. It's all steamed over on one side, so she spins the mirror vertically to try the other side, catching Indy under the chin with the edge of the mirror. And we cut outside the boat to hear his scream from a distance. She doesn't even realize she's done anything. Yeah, but if this always bothered me, though. Because like, if you are able to hear it from outside the boat, the yeah. concept is that it's incredibly loud, and then she's like, oh, did you say something? I think that's what's funny about I it. I know that's it's what's like, supposed to be funny. He just funny, screamed but- for eight seconds, and you're like, did you say something? <laughs> I, I think she did it on purpose. Well, she's probably got a bit of tinnitus from all the different uh, guns that she's been firing that day and Indy firing the gun next to her head. That's true. But she would also probably notice when the mirror like stopped for a second as she was pulling it down. No, it was, it was a heavy mirror. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't stop it for didn't a stop. second. <laughs> Indy removes his shirt, revealing many wounds. You're not the man I knew 10 years ago. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Everywhere she touches him, he flinches in pain. Well, goddammit, anywhere doesn't it hurt? Here. He points to an elbow, and she kisses it. He points to his forehead, and she kisses that. Then an eyelid, and finally his lips. That last kiss lasts longer, long enough for Indy to pass out. We dissolve to below deck, where the Ark is making a thrumming noise that disturbs the rats on board. The camera pushes in tight on a swastika printed on the crate, which spontaneously combusts. And we cut back up to the room where Indy wakes Marion by loading his gun. 
She seems naked under the covers, and in the context of the franchise, I think we are to believe that Little Mutt Williams, Shia LaBeouf's character from the fourth installment, has just been conceived. Although they are together at the end of the film, so it could have happened any time. Above deck, Indy learns from Katanga that the ship is surrounded by U-boats looking specifically for them. This particular U-boat was borrowed from the production of Das Boot, and some claim that the crew was not properly notified and were surprised at the expensive prop's sudden disappearance. Katanga offers them a secure hiding place in the hold. As Nazis swarm the ship, they capture Marion yet again. They locate the crate in the bowels of the ship with all its Nazi regalia burned off of it. They must assume that Indy did this, because if God scorched all of my symbols off of a box, I'd be getting serious, are we the baddies vibes? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be like, all right, that sounds cool. He just doesn't like that logo, I guess. Indy watches from the safety of what we decided in our Popeye episode is called a boat trumpet, as Marion is handed over and Indy is declared dead. Katanga tries to make a deal with Dietrich to leave Marion behind and take only the Ark, but he's quickly reminded that he has no leverage in this situation. You are not in the position to ask for anything. We will take what we wish. Belloc manages to wrestle Marion's custody from Dietrich. Down in the U-boat, we see a captain charting a path. After the U-boat leaves, Katanga is informed that Indy is no longer in his secure quarters. I don't think he ever was, because he was in the boat trumpet yeah. the whole time. They notice him climbing around on the outside of the departing U-boat and celebrate this apparent victory, like it's not an eminent drowning. Yeah. yeah, I have questions here. Yeah, a lot of people have questions here. <laughs> my, my biggest question, uh, how'd they get the Ark on the submarine? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Does How? everything does everything on a sub have to go through the tiny person shaped hole? Yeah, hmm. pretty much. That's that's the whole concept. Is that there's no there's no space on the inside that you could even fit that whole box. I mean, you you could probably fit it somewhere in a torpedo hole. But maybe that's why it never. Maybe it has to be strapped to the outside, and so maybe it never went under because it, never, it was strapped to the outside. Well, then, I, but you would have people guarding it for sure. Probably they got one guy up there. It's <laughs> <laughs> just not on their team. They should have just taken Katanga's boat. <laughs> yeah. Indy has lost his hat in the swim to the boat. Luckily, they never submerged, but there is a deleted scene of him tying himself to the periscope with his whip. I would have also have accepted him just going up to the deck gun that's there and just pointing it right at the submarine and just... Yeah. <laughs> just stopping it immediately where it was. Yeah. Yeah. Killing Marion. There's a whole section of the novel dedicated to Indy strapping himself to the periscope and then riding the submarine to wherever it's going. Uh, I also don't like that earlier when the submarine, when Mary's taken to the submarine and it's showing like, you know, quote unquote, a montage of life on the submarine. A guy comes down a ladder and does a dramatic turn and they kind of do a slow push on him. And, and it's, it's nobody. It, well, yeah, but it's an actor who looks kind of like Harrison Ford. Oh, that is weird. And and I don't like... I always remember growing up was like, is that him? But then it cuts, but then it cuts to the outside and he's climbing around the submarine. He's like, so who was that guy? (laughs) (laughs) But in general, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Subs do, do go like when they're generally just traveling around, are they on the surface or did they go down to go about their business? So that depends on a lot of, of factors. Um, but they can just cruise on the surface. That's not a problem. Well, they, yes, they, I, I realize they're capable of it, but what is the preferred method of getting from point A to point B if you're not hiding from something? I don't know yeah. if there are fuel efficiency concerns. I think there's less air resistance if you're slightly above water than there is if you're completely under. 
there's less air resistance. If there's you're... less resistance okay. because you're in the <laughs> air. You're 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 you have air resistance going on instead of water resistance. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, I'm like under the water. There's no air resistance because there's no air. <laughs> uh, they also had most control of the Mediterranean at that point, so. There well, was the, no risk for yeah. that. Yeah, I guess that they, they might not be afraid, but I'm just wondering, like, I would have thought for a sub that traveling under the water was more efficient than traveling above it water. It probably but, is, but it would be weird if, it, not that anything would have changed, mm-hmm. uh, if at the end of this film, Indiana Jones was just drowned on the top <laughs> of a submarine when they got where they were going. Well, see, that that's why I think taking Katanga's ship would have made more sense plot. One, they would take the ship to the secret island, but right. then it would also give you a means of escape from the island. Right. That because because when we get there, it's There's like not a dock for it. Yeah. It, well, but no, but uh, in the film as it exists at the end of the film, when they're on the island, it's like, how'd they get off? Yeah. Like they, they can't call anybody. So this isn't this place that they're heading is an island. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, why? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, well, wait, I, is the place where the ceremony happens is an island? Yeah. Oh, they, sh- they show it on a map because they show the island in the visual effect shot with the fl- flames going up in the sky. They show oh, the that's island. true. They do. Yeah. Okay. You're right. But why are they going to an island? Um, because they, that's where they have this rock formation with the perfect staging for the ceremony that they need to do. I, my, okay. We'll get there. I don't know why they're doing a ceremony. Uh, my guess as to why an island in the middle of nowhere would be. Just in case you open this thing and the devastating power of God does come out, like maybe don't do this in the middle of Berlin. Yeah, I think I think they wouldn't be so close if they thought that was even a possibility. I think it's more they don't want to keep taking it back and forth from other people. So they're like, let's go to an island where we're the only people on the island, and we can do our thing. It's it's a safe it's a safe place to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And if it goes bad, it won't be in the middle of Berlin. Right. That's my guess. In the book, he uh, there's there's a whole like almost a full chapter of him like trying to like just reciting phone numbers, keeping himself entertained on the top of this submarine. But then when they get where they're going to the sub pen, he accidentally leaves his whip tied to the periscope too. So now he's hatless and whipless when he gets where he's going. But I don't think he uses the whip much in the rest of the story. Does he not have his hat for the whole rest of the film? He lost it when he swam hmm. to the submarine. Yeah. Oh. The U-boat approaches a sub-pen built into a cavern of a small island. A thoroughly soaked Indy snatches a Nazi soldier from behind and dons his uniform. Though another soldier seems to have a clear view of the entire assault and does nothing. Like the guy seems to be looking at him while he's beating this Nazi up. Well, and as he pulls a guy back, I'm surprised he makes no sounds. Right. Because it's not like he kills him instantly. Mm-hmm. He pulls him back and beats him up a bit. And I'm like, wouldn't you scream? I... I scream when I accidentally miss a step on the stairs going upstairs. I go, ah! <laughs> like so. That's true. So someone grabbing me from behind, I'm definitely screaming. The uniform is a bit small, and Indy is interrupted by a second soldier who lectures him in German for being so sloppily dressed, but doesn't seem to care about the dead naked Nazi lying at both of his feet. <laughs> I like that Indy stripped off his underwear too. Yeah, because Indy doesn't go commando. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Indy beats up the second guy and takes his hat. Belloc orders the soldiers to take the Ark to the platform built to his exact specifications. Dietrich confesses that he's uncomfortable with the prospect of performing a Jewish ritual. This was added to the script late in the game when it occurred to the filmmakers that Nazi anti-Semitism, their defining characteristic, had previously gone completely unmentioned in the film. Belloc assuages his fears. 
Are you sure it's necessary? Let me ask you this. Would you be more comfortable opening the Ark in Berlin for your Fuhrer? Finding out only then if the sacred pieces of the Covenant are inside? Knowing only then whether you have accomplished your mission and obtained the one true Ark. The Nazis marched the Ark... Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Yeah. This is, this is my point. I don't understand why they're doing the ceremony. I get that you want to check to see that there's stuff inside. Why are we doing it as a ceremony with a Jewish ritual? Because once they hand this thing off to Hitler, Rene Belloc is dismissed. He doesn't get to be a part of whatever they do yeah. with it. So if he wants to do anything with it, he's going to do the thing with it. Yeah. And this is the thing that what you can do with the Ark. He, he's convincing them. He's gaslighting them. He's tricking them into letting him do this ceremony because he actually cares about it as a historian. Okay, but why? Like, I get that as a historian, you want to know if there's things inside of it. But why are you doing the ceremony? Why not? Why would you not do it? Why? But because when you go to, like, some temple where they used to sacrifice humans you're just like this is cool i want to learn about this you don't sacrifice a human yeah because that's while you're- not magic this guy wants to experience magic he wants to experience god firsthand and it requires this ceremony to yes. do that yeah so if he had just opened it up willy-nilly without the ceremony god wouldn't have shown up i don't Maybe. know for sure that that that's the risk he was not willing to take so he did the ceremony exactly as it is explained in the bible the Nazis marched the Ark through a canyon to a special platform under Nazi flags, with Belloc and Marion leading the way, and Indy last in line, apparently undetected. Like, there's only, like, 20 people here. They didn't mm-hmm. notice that Indiana Jones is one of the people in the Nazi regalia. And his and, uniform and is of, slightly different. Yeah, and one of them is missing. Yeah, and he's sort of lagging behind everybody. A fly blows by the shot. Perhaps he'll show up later. <laughs> Indy sneaks away from the line and calls down to the men from above with a stolen rocket launcher. Only Marion is happy to see him, but when Indy makes an empty threat, Jones! I'm going to blow up the acrony! It's Belloc's turn to smile. I, I I, love Tote in this scene because the moment Indiana Jones shows up, he just goes, I'm done, and he yeah. walks away and sits down. Yeah. <laughs> He's this just like, guy, we've killed him seven times this week. <laughs> Belloc instructs his men to make room for Indy to take the shot. But during his little speech here, a fly lands on his lip and seems to disappear into his mouth. Paul Freeman has explained in several Q&As that the fly actually flew away, but Spielberg decided to pull the frames of the fly's escape because the illusion amused him. (laughs) (laughs) Is that true? Yeah. Oh my God. How do you, but I don't, there's like no jump. He must've been like just. It's just one 24th of a second. But he's holding so still that you can't. I think there was maybe one frame where you could see the fly moving away and it would have sold the whole fly not going into his mouth. But they pulled that one frame out because it was funny that he ate this fly. Oh my God. That's got to annoy you for the rest of your life that everyone asks if you ate a fly. It seems to be his most popular question at at Q&As. And I, I would guess that he starts them all with the disclaimer. Now, are there any questions? Keeping in mind that I already explained about the fly. <laughs> Indy claims that he is willing to surrender the Ark in exchange for Marion, but they don't believe it, and they call his bluff. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This 
This is history. Indy drops the rocket launcher, and Nazis come up behind him. That night, Belloc dons the ceremonial robes required for the ritual. They are described very precisely in the Bible, and he's wearing exactly accurate to the ceremony robes. I thought he looked like a stonecutter. Yes, that's that's the exact one. Can you imagine having, like, the Nazis? So here's what I need you to do. I need you to melt down a bunch of gold and make a giant, like, ram's head staff for yeah. me. Okay, now here's what I'm going to be wearing. It's like, all right, why are we doing this for this guy? Why don't we just give this thing to our Fuhrer and leave? Why is he even still on the boat? I'm surprised Belloc was kind enough to offer Indy a seat at this event, though. Belloc sweats as he begins, and two Nazis lean down to open the ark. Inside, there is only a fine white sand. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone open an ancient artifact, only to find seemingly useless powder inside? The Awakening? More recently than that. This is a small container. Um... About the size of a human hand. Yeah, I was just going to say the hand movie. I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was called. Um, so relevant to the plot, I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. That's right. I'm trying to think of like random words <laughs> in hopes it would... Quadrilateral. <laughs> Demonoid messenger of death. Oh, I wouldn't have come up with that one. Belloc is shocked. Dietrich is furious. And Tote bursts into a fit of laughter at the empty, seemingly empty arc. Suddenly... All of the electrical equipment that the Nazis have brought along to light and record the event begins to explode around them. How are they powering that stuff? They, generator. They had a generator. Oh, okay. I, I also like that they show that they have a film crew. Crew. Yeah, they're probably and, using the same camera from the movie. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I, I really hope that this is just them getting coverage. Yeah. <laughs> they just dressed up second unit as Nazis. Something occurs to Indy, probably the passage from Exodus about not touching or looking inside the Ark. Sparks are flying all around them, and from deep inside the Ark, a glowing storm emerges. Fog billows out in all directions, calling to mind the images of the demolished Central Park West from the third act of Ghostbusters three years later, also the work of special effects wizard Richard Edlund. Fog pours out of the Ark and fills the stage, tumbling down the rocks into the terrified audience. Beams of light reach out of the box, and Indy offers Marion a warning. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion. and don't look at it no matter what happens. Very ghostbustery spirits swirl around Belloc and lift Dietrich up into the air. They even ensnare Indy and Marion, but take no purchase in those who have averted their gaze. Freeman was never told explicitly what's happening here, just to pretend that something was about to attack and to scream. The ghosts were essentially puppets being pulled through water, though one was not a puppet, but a Lucasfilm receptionist in a long white robe on wires in front of a blue screen. The beautiful ghost woman floats around for a while when suddenly her face rots into a horrid jack-o'-lantern and Belloc, Dietrich, and Tote have a look-completely-ridiculous contest. For my money, Dietrich is winning. Yeah. <laughs> that, he, that mouth shape. Yeah, it's like MacGruber yeah. when when a uh, uh, cunt cuts off his hair. Yeah. He's just got that, that total perfect U-shaped Yeah, it's mouth. a perfect crescent downward. A spinning flame emerges from the arc, and a beam like the stream from a Ghostbusters neutrona wand starts leapfrogging from Nazi to Nazi throughout the crowd until everyone is caught in its web. They all collapse to the ground with glowing holes in their torsos, but the best three deaths are yet to come. Dietrich's head implodes while his skin melts off. Tote's entire head melts down to the bone, and Belloc's head completely explodes behind an almost opaque wall of fire. 
Dietrich's head was a hollow mold with a vacuum at the center, sucking everything inward. Tote's head was a gelatin and plaster mold, melting in a time-lapse shot under a heat lamp. And Belloc's death is our third shotgun-triggered exploding head prop for the year, after Scanners and Maniac. It was so brutal that that shot alone locked in the R rating. The wall of fire was added to appease the MPAA, and that was enough to bring the whole thing down to a PG. They didn't <laughs> even take the exploding head out. They just covered it with fire. Yeah, Interesting. it's not so bad. Flames ripped down the steps from the stage, engulfing the Nazi corpses, narrowly missing Indy and Marion, but suddenly the arc is a vacuum, and everything is being sucked back up toward it. The bodies are all gone, and a fiery tornado punches a hole in the sky. The arc's lid is tossed up to the ozone layer and comes spinning back down, clicking neatly into place over the arc. After a moment, Andy finds the ropes holding them have burned away, and they are alone with the terrifying treasure. We cut to Washington, D.C., where Indy meets again with the G-Men from the start of the film. They congratulate him on a job well done, but Indy is furious that Brody will not be allowed to keep the Ark. Not that I'd want to be anywhere near it. Yeah. Like, what kind of security expenses are you going to have keeping that there? The Nazis are just going to attack your museum nonstop if you have the Ark on display. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe not that he wants it, but maybe they just want to be involved in the process of learning about it. Yeah, maybe. But either way, I feel like where I would want that arc is exactly where it goes. That's that's where it should be. Under a pile where no one will ever find it. That's where it should be. Instead of receiving the arc, the museum has been granted a settlement. Major Eaton is evasive with his answers, insisting that the arc is safe and that it's being studied by experts. We have top men working on it right now. Who? Top men. It bothers me that William Hootkins never played an owl in anything, but I'm glad that at least Indy said who to him. (laughs) Who? After the meeting, we cut to Marion waiting for Indy on the steps. This last moment with Marion was Marsha Lucas's idea. After, in the initial cut, Marion's story was never resolved after the opening of the arc. We just never saw her again. And it was just implied that, oh, that adventure was over. They're fine. They leave together to get a drink and take Indy's mind off the arc. We cut to a crate being nailed shut and locked closed in a warehouse. A warehouse worker puts the crate on a dolly and walks it down an aisle, packing it into an idiocracy Costco of similar boxes, stretching to the horizon of this impossible building called Hangar 51 somewhere in Nevada. That's a detail that we learn when we come back to this place in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Some people say that this is Area 51, but the official name in the fourth film is Hangar 51, which is actually a combination of Area 51 and Hangar 18. Area 51 was not officially constructed until decades after the events of this Mm. film. Do you guys recall the last time we dealt with a Hangar 18? (laughs) Nope. Hangar 18. Oh, you got me. The arc is labeled 9906753, and it isn't disturbed again until 21 years later when Indy crashes a truck into it during the events of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And then... uh... Years later, when the movie Red Notice... Oh, did they find it in there, too? Yeah, uh, there's a scene where they're walking around a room full of crates uh, in this, like, Nazi horde of crates and art. Oh, my God, really? And, and they pass by. I was like, that's the Ark of the Covenant. It says, U.S. military, do not open. And like, <laughs> I was like, ah, you guys. That's fun. Does the, is the number representative of anything? No. How many digits is it? Seven. Is it a phone number? Nine, nine, zero, six, seven, five, three. <laughs> <That's> what, yeah. <laughs> Credits roll over the gorgeous map painting of the warehouse, and that is the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is a popular Indy should have done nothing theory, 
first proposed by Jacopo della Quercia in a listicle for Cracked.com and then later ripped off by the Big Bang Theory for Season 7, Episode 4, The Raiders' Minimization, which states that without Indy's intervention, the events of the film would have happened in the same order or maybe have been better because the arc might have made it all the way to the Fuhrer before it was opened, thus ending the war before it started. But wouldn't, uh, I guess you'd have to go through the whole theory, wouldn't uh, Belloc try to open it before it went there? I think he would, but then the Nazis would still have it, right? Because it's their island. Yeah, but they don't, let's not open it in front of the dude that we like that might yeah. melt him. I still think Hitler would be like, well, I'm no, I'm the one you're allowed to open it in front of. Like, he would think that he's special. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess... He was, like, super high on meth all the time. He was probably like, I'm God. The Like, the best case scenario would be, like, they they radioed and said, hey, we're going to go up and open the Ark. And when they don't hear back, they come check, and there's nothing left. Like, they, they don't find any cameras or anything, because all that... Yeah, they don't even know people died. They don't even know it's dangerous. They, they probably think Indiana Jones killed all these guys. Because it's just an arc left in uh, yeah. on an altar. So yeah. he's like, where's the last place it could possibly be? Mm -hmm. Now bring it to me and we'll open it again. Yeah. Okay. Just keep sending guys to open it and they keep not coming back. Yeah. So I guess the, the difference that it makes is that Indiana Jones was there. So at least it didn't kill the wrong people after that point. Well, I, I, I my problem with Indy Does Nothing is probably marion would be dead yeah that's true yeah well, because she wouldn't know to close from the, her eyes probably well probably from the first you know time that they tried to take her medallion thing yeah. or she would just have a shitty burn mark on her face and then she would have handed it over like how long do you think she would have stood up to torture i don't think that i don't think they would have kept her alive afterwards why not why would you like that there's no no loose ends. i guess if, if they just really like killing people but they're not worried about anybody <laughs> following them i mean they the Nazis obviously aren't do. known for liking to kill people <laughs> well, but i just mean like well then why don't they every time they go to a restaurant murder the entire staff and just take whatever they want well because that staff didn't have the thing that leads them to what they want to get yeah but she doesn't either if she already gave it to them why would well why would i they guess kill i her guess after maybe that? they hang on to her the same reason they hang on to her for other reasons which is maybe she has additional information that her mm -hmm. dad or had belloc about. just wants to screw her well yeah her for that but reason. either way i guess she she might have lived long enough to to for them to find it that's true it's also worth mentioning that there are a trio of kids from mississippi chris Stompolos. Eric Zala and Jason Lamb, who immediately upon seeing the film set about shooting a shot-for-shot -shot remake, aging five or six years over the course of their adaptation. They were like 11 when they started it, and they were like 16 or 17 by the time they finished making it. Somehow, it made its way to Eli Roth, who showed it to Ain't It Cool News' Harry Knowles, and the kids got a whole documentary out of it called Raiders, the Story of the Greatest Fan Film Ever Made. Ironically, I could not find a copy of their film, but they reportedly made mid-six-figure selling the rights to the documentary, so good for them. Weird Al's 1989 film, UHF, begins with a Raiders parody. It starts on a mountain and Al and his guides march past. When one of his guides pulls a gun, Al spins with a whip and literally takes the man's whole arm off with it. Al steps into the light for the first time and we quickly enter a lost temple. The second guide makes a run for it when they encounter a carving of a funny face in stone, but one step outside the cave, the guide is crushed by a train. Al walks through a room, crowded with stop signs, danger signs, severe tire damage signs, until he finds the central chamber and the grand prize of the temple, an Oscar. He considers weighing the statue, but at the last second he just tosses the bag over his shoulder and grabs it. The temple begins to collapse, and Al uses the Oscar to hold up a stone wall to escape. 
The boulder chases him from the temple, and he even mimics Indy's like half stumble on the way out. But then in this version, the boulder crashes through the entrance and continues chasing Al past the Sphinx, through snow, out into a city street where he finally runs out of breath and the rock makes a hard left to follow him and smash him in the street. We cut from a flat weird owl to a burger on a grill and we see that this is a dream he's having at his fast food job. Magnum P.I. Season 8, Episode 10, Legend of the Lost Art. How many of these are we going to go through? This is the last one. Magnum spends the opening gambit exploring a booby-trapped cave and triggers a complete cave-in, barely escaping with its prize. He's dressed exactly like Indy, apparently at Higgins' request. I don't understand, and why do I have to wear this hat? To keep the sun out of your eyes. Magnum is sent out in search of the titular Lost Art, but the phrase is close enough to Lost Ark that even Magnum trips over it a bit. I said no! N-O! No! No! No more traps! No more caves! No more Lost Ark! Lost Art! Even the episode's villain screws it up. It's a running gag. To locate the lost ark. Art. What? Art. The lost art of the ancients. You said the lost ark. A common mistake. Magnum is briefly reunited with an old flame until she apparently dies in an explosion. Later, he finds her in a tent, bound and gagged and being sexually assaulted by his rival. At one point, Magnum seems shot, but we reveal that the gunshot that we heard was TC shooting a henchman over Magnum's shoulder. Magnum punches a guy out the driver's side window of a truck and then shakes his hand like it hurt. The villain of the episode is a film buff who typically patterns his plots after existing films. At first, Magnum thinks that the plot is reminiscent of an existing TV movie called Nyoka and the Lost Secret of Hippocrates, but later his love interest suggests that it might actually be Raiders of Ghost City, which, as I mentioned before, is the serial from which Lucas borrowed the surname Jones. When they find the treasure, it's in an underground cavern in an ark. We found it. The ark. Art. Don't you mean art, art Higgins, the lost art? Of course I do. The lost art is in the ark. According to the legend. And what else would you guess this underground cavern is full of? Can't be. Snakes. There's no snakes in Hawaii. And apparently that's true. Snakes are 100% illegal in Hawaii because they have no natural predators there. And yet this cavern is full of them, so maybe they shot a day in California. The girl in the snake hole with Magnum jumps on his shoulders to escape them. Magnum notices snakes coming out of the wall and realizes there's a chamber on the other side, and they make their escape through a hole in the wall. Magnum finds Higgins being tortured for information. Where if I the lost Ark? Ark. And I'll see you in Hades first. The episode ends with Magnum whipping a gun out of the baddie's hand and he runs off, accidentally falling into the collapsed underground temple. I've watched this movie my entire life. Yeah. It's great. It's really wonderful storytelling and photography and performances from everybody. Visual effects. I mean, I've seen this movie a million times, but I feel like, so this time around, I watched it specifically knowing coming into this because you know i probably could have done this episode without having watched it because i've seen it so many times but like i watched it looking for additional details that i i feel like i've never seen before and for the most part i feel like i've noticed all these details before you know like i you know i I knew about most of this stuff and the only you know the call letters on the the side of the plane were one of the only things i was like i guess i never bothered to read them yeah 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 (laughs) Well, in uh, Temple of Doom, I think it's Club Obi-Wan. Right, yeah, that, that one's a little are, more blatant. Yeah. 
they're at least being subtle here with just like some letters from the names. But I do feel like in terms of details that I, I hadn't really noticed or thought about, um, just the, the cinematography, like I was really kind of paying attention to that. And I'm just like, it's so nicely shot. It's yeah, just it really beautiful. Is. I just I just love this whole cast. I think everybody works really well together. I think the trio of Indy, Marion, and Sala are so fun, like yeah. every scene they have together. Uh, I think Marion is like one of the best female characters like put to film. Yeah. Like, because she, she's tough. You know, she she has agency. Like, she acts on her own mm-hmm. without being instructed. You know, she gets she gets into situations that she can't handle, and then and and she runs. Yeah, she's not like, giving up and waiting for Indy to come save her. She's yeah. like trying to orchestrate her escape every time. But you know, when when a truckload of Nazis come, she gets on a gun and starts opening fire. Like yeah. she yeah. she wasn't asked to do that. She didn't. Indy didn't tell her right. to help him. She chose. Just to, like I have to do this right. or yeah. we lose. And yeah. same thing when when Bella, you know, she's in the tent with Bella, you know, and Indy left her there when he could have saved her. She's like, I'm gonna get drunk and trick this guy yeah. and get out of here. Yeah, she's plotting the whole time. I, I really do like uh, John Rice Davies in this. I think he's wonderful as Sala. And uh, I wish Marcus Brody had more to do in the first film, but yeah. he does get to come back and play more of a part in Last Crusade. Yeah, he. I mean, Last Crusade, he gets a little goofier. I like, kind of like goofy Marcus. Yeah. I feel like he would be that way in this movie if he left the campus at all. Yeah. But... um. Well, and, <laughs> and then we get into Crystal Skull and his his cameo portrait appearance yeah which is a screen grab from last crusade right of him on the tank i think it's yeah. just like what like denim elliott has been in so many films yeah and you could grab even if you got like a, a clip from like a bridge too far where he's like in a military uniform yeah you know, or, like, or i'm sure there's something where he's teaching or yeah. like in in some kind of a nice like vest you know suit yes but yeah. was but any of those owned by paramount mm. <laughs> That's true. The, the take a clip from the ending scene of Trading Places when he's in like when they're in the tropics. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> just uh, say he's on vacation. Don't say he's dead. Say he's on vacation. He sent me this postcard and just having a be a clip yeah. from Trading Places. Uh, <laughs> that reminds me of Resurrection now because when Esco Brown at the end were like, "Oh, the old man died," and she's like, "No, I have a postcard. He went to Machu Picchu." <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, oh, good. Yeah, like uh, yeah, I feel bad that Denim Elliot is not in enough of this movie. But yeah. It's um I also feel bad that Marion comes back for Crystal Skull and gets almost nothing to do in that movie. She's just kind of like screaming at Indy the whole time and laughing at all of his terrible jokes. But you know what? I uh I rewatched that movie to prepare for this and I, I I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters. And I have to say, I was not a fan the first time. It's so much worse than I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. Yeah, I haven't seen it since we saw it in theaters either, and I hated it. But you're saying it's just as bad as when we first Yeah, I thought it. it was just like I didn't I didn't properly like process it and I was just pissed off when I came out of it and I didn't want to go back to it. And I rewatched it and it's just like what are you guys doing? Every decision seems so counterintuitive. Nothing is practical the dialogue just doesn't work none of the characters make sense and you just you just plopped a, a new character and pretended that he functionally is the exact same as Marcus Brody like that's mm-hmm. not what you do when you drop another character in i think Shia LaBeouf is a great choice for a young Indiana Jones yeah i i think he he looks like him like looking at young Harrison Ford here i see 
facial expressions that I've seen Shia LaBeouf make. They make sense as father and son. I think that that movie failed in the script, and I think it failed in the direction. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, just the... I, I mean, you you 100% lost me on the premise alone. Like, when we're that talking... aliens? Yeah, it's aliens. 100%. Like I, like, I will never get over that it's aliens when we've... Up until this point, like, it's been all about, you know religious things and god and right but it's maybe contradictory even, religious things it maybe even ghosts and and occult stuff like we said but like aliens like it's a different it's just different it's not the same universe i think that in the style of those old serials you would have aliens and you would have yeah. god and you would have time travel and vampires and shit like stuff would we show just up mix and match yeah, it didn't really convenient. matter as long as there's you keep it in one realm per film then that's okay but i think uh i think it starts to go a little wonky when everything is cg all of a sudden Monkeys. when they paid so close attention <laughs> to make everything practical well and 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 just all the lighting is really bizarre. Everyone's really oddly lit. Yeah. Like every scene, I feel like the guy with the, the, the reflection card is just like right there in front of them because everyone's so bright. Mm. Yeah. And everything everybody says or does feels very character breaking. Mm-hmm. And then there's this really fucking obnoxious character who just says like every single line. He's like a Pokemon named Jonesy. And every single line he says is just Jonesy, Jonesy, Jonesy over and over and over again. Yeah. And his, and his character name is Mac, which is the laziest writing in the world. And it's just this Mac who says Jonesy. That's all he does for the whole movie. And it's infuriating. He's, he's the worst written character in the whole movie. I, I, I can. I mean, obviously we shouldn't spend forever talking about Crystal yeah. Skull. Cause there's just so much wrong with that film. Right. Um, I love Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade is my favorite of the trilogy. Oh, I was going to say, what do you, how do you rank it? Because it's I I I think that Temple of Doom is my least favorite, but I struggle between this one and uh and, and Last Crusade. I don't know. I don't know which one's my favorite because I would I I think before I would have said that Last Crusade's my favorite, but this one's so good. This one's really good. It's my least favorite of the original trilogy. Really? Yeah. I, and, and I love Doom, this movie. Kate Capshaw just ruins Temple uh, of Kate Doom Capshaw's the worst. for me. Honestly, Short Round is enough to cancel out Capshaw in my brain. I love I him in that movie. I love everything in that movie except her. Yeah. And, but, but in this movie, I actually think that uh, I love Marion so much that I and, and the fact that Last Crusade doesn't have a love interest that I like like this mm-hmm. you yeah. know the the blonde girl is just you know like, yeah she doesn't even seem like a keeper girlfriend yeah exactly like she's yeah. just a fling and 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 she's also a bad guy and you know like but but yeah I, those two movies are, are i'm torn between because of that reason yeah um i've come to like temple of doom more um i still say it's my least favorite of the three raiders being my most favorite yeah but i've come to appreciate temple of doom more because I understand the arc of Indiana Jones better yeah. in that film, which I didn't understand as a kid, I think. The whole, like, because because they have that conversation when they're at the palace and he, he, they're talking about, like, he's like, oh, you've been accused of grave robbing and all this other stuff. You're only in it for fortune and glory. Right. Uh, as a kid, I didn't really get that Indiana Jones was a different type of person. Yeah. Um, and... And looking back on it now, I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is great. He he becomes a better person by the end of the... He actually has an arc 
he goes through a change. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that he doesn't go no, through. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. They took it away from him, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he doesn't have that in the other films. Like, I guess you could say like reconnecting with his father is, is an arc. Yeah. But that's why I love that one so much is their relationship. Yeah. Cause yeah. they're so fun together. Yeah. They were such brilliant casting those two, those two actors against each other. And I also think that it's just last crusade is, is the more fun watch. Yeah. Because it also yeah. has a lot of, of light moments. Um, for me as a kid, temple of doom was my number one for a long time because i had a character to relate to in short round Mm. where because i i was never the person who watched those movies and thought i'm the indiana jones character i was always like oh this is an adventure that's happening and i'm just gonna follow the characters and see what they do but with temple of doom i felt like i was with him in the movie yeah you know going through everything that he was going with and wondering if i could do what short round was doing in the scene and and so for that movie i always really connected with that one and then as i grew up and i was like Okay, Last Crusade is so great. The set pieces are so great. I and think I liked that one best because it had it was like a mystery that they were putting together. Like I don't feel like that happened as much with Raiders. Yeah. But I but I love the fact that, you know, he's he's going after his dad and and he's piecing together this puzzle as we go and so we get we get more of a glimpse of him as a character because, you know, or, or like what he goes through to find these things. Right. Because I feel like in Raiders everything was kind of just handed to him. Like he he didn't discover a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. You know, like what you know, he's just I guess he discovered that the staff was a different height, but it wasn't really him. It was some guy that could read the thing that he had. Yeah, that's true. It is interesting that even though they they do set him up as a very knowledgeable person who can speak with some authority on the Neolithic era to his students and that he can cite all these passages from the Bible from memory that he hasn't bothered to learn Havidas. And it's like, you're going to Peru. You're going to this temple where this thing is. You should learn the local language or some of it at least. And then things like that where it's like, you can't read this inscription you can read so many like ancient texts but you don't know the one for the single thing you came here to figure out yeah and he talks about tannis and stuff so like he's a smart guy but i feel like last crusade he actually on the fly frequently needs to know about the stuff that his dad used to teach him when he was a kid and and things that he's learned and all this stuff when he's like oh wait that the j is an h and and freaks out Yeah. yeah yeah exactly is that what it is? The J. It's an I. It's an I. Joe begins with an I. I don't know. I like. I like. I like that it's a. It's a mystery and and the character development and the relationship with his dad. So I think I am going with that one as my favorite. Yeah. Um. I have to give it a thumbs down though. What? Raiders. No, I'm just kidding. It's a thumbs up. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, big thumbs up. Yes. And I got a big surprise coming up here. Oh my god! <gasps> for my letter, Richard. Where is this going on your letterbox? Above or below scanners? I think. <laughs> uh. Well. Excalibur oh. was my number one. Right. And it still is. And it this still, is at the no. bottom. Uh, yeah. Uh, Raiders is number one. Uh, I don't know what's going to be able to unseat it. Uh, for 81? I don't, I don't see that I, happening I don't, for you. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's going to be possible unless we get a, another magical hidden gem. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Raiders number one. I have Raiders at number one also. Yeah. It, it officially dethrones Amy for me. What? Amy? <laughs> yeah, that's, my, that's my top movie All still. Right. I have it at numero uno, and it is just above Scanners for me. <laughs> How many have we uh, done so far? 80, I think. I, I think we're on 80. 80 titles for the but year. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. I haven't really looked at the schedule coming up, but I have a hard time imagining this is going to be beat 
Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff coming down the line. Maybe Condor Man, but <laughs> I have tried so many times to watch Condor Man because you talk about it all the time. <laughs> I know. I cannot get 20 minutes into that movie. Oh, it's so bad. It's awful. Our director here was Steven Spielberg. He directed all the indie so far. He directed Jaws, Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Private Ryan, Lincoln, Ready Player One, The Color Purple, Close Encounters, all kinds of stuff. That was all for memory, guys. <laughs> it's not impressive. Everybody knows what he did. He and Harrison Ford's wife, Melissa Matheson, wrote a script together during breaks on the set of this film, which would go on to be E.T. the Extraterrestrial, released the following year. The writer here was Lawrence Kasdan. He got his start with Lucasfilm, writing Empire and Raiders back-to-back. His own first script, Continental Divide, released three months later, but he also wrote and directed Body Heat, which released two months later. So 81 is a huge year for him. He also wrote Bodyguard, Return of the Jedi, The Force Awakens, Solo. He wrote and directed The Big Chill, Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, and Dreamcatcher. His son... <laughs> dream, <laughs> ugh, for Dreamcatcher. Dream I fucking catcher. love that movie. Oh, that movie is a mess. I did it. His son Jake Kasdan wrote and directed Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story. The wrong kid died. <laughs> the story here came from George Lucas. He created Star Wars. He directed THX 1138, American Graffiti, and Star Wars' one through four. The story came from Philip Kaufman. He directed the 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the best one, and he also wrote and directed The Right Stuff, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and Henry in June. He turned down this film to direct The Outlaw Josie Wales, but before it began production, Eastwood took over as director. The music here came from John Williams. All Star Wars movies, all indie movies, The Long Goodbye, Superman, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park, etc. We've obviously heard him last year for Empire, he's back this year for Superman 2, and Heartbeeps. He also wrote a Christmas score for Home Alone that fits so well that I'm still convinced they were all Christmas songs before that movie came out. <laughs> Cinematographer Douglas Slocum. We saw his work last year in Nijinsky, and he comes back for Temple of Doom and Last Crusade, as well as the Connery non-canon Bond, Never Say Never Again, in 83. He has three Oscar nominations for his work on Raiders, Julia, and Travels with My Aunt. Spielberg originally pitched darker mood lighting, but Slocum wanted to bring in more light and use the sun when possible. Spielberg was quickly impressed with the solid beams of sunlight cutting through each scene. A smoke machine was employed for crisper beams. Editor Michael Kahn, before this he cut The Devil's Reign. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, oh, so, yeah, William Shatner? Yeah, where yeah. the last like <laughs> 25 minutes is just faces melting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also edited The Return of a Man Called Horse, and then a couple Spielberg titles with Close Encounters in 1941 and Zemeckis' Used Cars last season. He followed this with a bunch more Spielberg-directed and produced stuff. Poltergeist, Twilight Zone, Goonies, Color Purple, Always, Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, AI, Minority Report, basically every Spielberg movie. Obviously, he also cut Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and Crystal Skull. And outside the Spielberg realm, he also cuts Arthur II, Arachnophobia, Alive, Casper, and Twister. Producer Frank Marshall also played the pilot of the Flying Wing because all the stuntmen were out sick, crapping themselves. He spent three days on set in 100-plus degree heat, riding in the plane's cockpit. He was the producer of this film. He has five Oscar nominations for producing this, The Color Purple, The Sixth Sense, Seabiscuit, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And he was also awarded the Irvin G. Thalberg Memorial Award at the 2019 Academy Awards. 
While producing this film, he met Kathleen Kennedy, who appears in the credits as associate to Mr. Spielberg, and six years later, Marshall and Kennedy were married. Kennedy is, of course, the current president of Lucasfilm. VFX were from Richard Edlund. He has VFX credits on all of the Star Wars, all the indies, Ghostbusters, Poltergeist, Masters of the Universe, Monster Squad, Die Hard, Alien 3, Species, Multiplicity, Bedazzled, all kinds of cool stuff. Love his work. It's very recognizable, too. I feel like when yeah. I see special effects that are from him, I can go, that's that's Edlund stuff. Sound effects came from Ben Burt. He did a bunch of original Foley for custom sounds on this track. The slithering of the snakes in the Well of Souls was him running his hands through cheese casserole. What? <laughs> that's how he did it. What's a cheese casserole? What isn't a cheese casserole? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that makes any sense. All the classic indie punch sounds came from swatting a pile of leather jackets with a baseball bat. The crack of his revolver has been replaced with that of a Winchester rifle. That's why it always sounds like he's shooting through people. <laughs> the rolling boulder is the sound of a Honda Civic rolling in neutral down a gravel hill. The opening of the arc lid is literally Ben Burt opening his own toilet tank. <laughs> My favorite tidbit, though, is that all the whip crack sounds are not just whip cracks, but whip cracks performed by Harrison Ford himself. Ben Burt also developed famous stock sound effects for Star Wars, E.T., Wally. -E. He developed R2-D2's language, the distinctive hum of lightsabers, blaster sounds, Darth Vader breathing. He's largely responsible for the popularity of the Wilhelm scream after using it in most of his projects. He has four Oscars for his work in Star Wars, this, E.T., and The Last Crusade. Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones. He's Han Solo, he's Rick Deckard, he's Blade Runner, he's President James Marshall in Air Force One. You know who this guy is. Karen Allen played Marion. She's Jenny Hayden in Starman. She was Katie in Animal House, Claire in Scrooged, and she obviously reprises her role in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and presumably, based on how Crystal Skull ends, she'll at least be mentioned in the next indie outing if she doesn't flat out appear in the film. Yeah. They get married. That's another thing that's kind of lame about Crystal Skull. It's like, really? You gotta end it with a wedding? Whatever. Spoiler alert. Paul Freeman played Belloc. He was also Ivan Ooze, the villain of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers film. Too kind, allow me to introduce myself. I'm the galactically feared, globally reviled, universally despised. They call me Ivan Ooze. He's Reverend Philip Shooter in Hot Fuzz and Goldsmith in Double Team with Van Damme and Dennis Rodman. Apparently, Jonathan Price was considered for the part. Oh. And I love Paul Freeman but I'm really sad that didn't work out. Oh, yeah, I, I would could... have really liked that. Yeah. That would have been perfect. Ronald Lacey played Tote. He was President Widmark in The Adventures of Buckaroo, Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. Spielberg picked him for Tote on account of his resembling Peter Lorre in some way. Totally. The role was first offered to Klaus Kinski, who followed a bigger paycheck to the set of 1981's Venom, which hits the U.S. in 1982. We'll get there. I could have totally seen that working out well, too, though. Yeah. He's a creepy weird dude totally in early storyboards the character of tote was pictured in a nazi uniform with a robot arm that could be used as a machine gun or flamethrower oh my god until lucas worried that they were leaning too hard into the fantasy side Aww. i think that would have been really fun but it also would have ruined the universe his appearance was based on photographs of ss head heinrich himmler who as i mentioned before stockpiled the ancient religious artifacts spielberg originally offered the role of tote to roman polanski 
And amazingly, there's also a transcription of that conversation. So we're going to perform that for you now, too. Oh. It's just uh, just Spielberg and Polanski. Here's your <clears throat> Polanski lines. Oh, am I starting? Yeah, you okay. start. <clears throat> Spielberg, I enjoyed your script, and I have decided to accept a role. That's great, Roman. We're hoping to shoot in Tunisia this summer, but we'll also need you at Elstree for a bit. I would like to play the man who has sex with the 15-year-old. Well, Roman, that's actually, that's Harrison's part. That's the lead. I see. I'm actually much too busy for this film. And scene. That's probably not a real transcript, but Polanski was offered the part of Tote, and he was not available to shoot in Tunisia. John Rice davies plays Sala. He's Gimli from Lord of the Rings franchise, but he's, most importantly, Professor Maximilian Arturo from Sliders. He also voices Man Ray, nemesis of Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy in the SpongeBob universe. The role was first offered to Danny DeVito, hmm. who had to refuse due to obligations to Taxi, but would later play a similar character in the Indiana Jones-esque Romancing the Stone. Kavork Malikian was also offered the role, but arrived an hour late to his audition due to traffic. He was invited back to play the character of Kazim in Last Crusade. We saw Malikian earlier this year as a bellboy in Sphinx mm -hmm. alongside Davies. He was the one who found her under the bed and mm -hmm. was like, you got a message. Denim Elliott played Brody, Marcus Brody, possibly a reference to Brody from Jaws, maybe an ancestor of his. He comes back for The Last Crusade and gets a quick little cameo in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the form of a screenshot from Last Crusade. <laughs> He's also Coleman in Trading Places, and we saw him last season as secret agent Stefan Vognik in Bad Timing. Alfred Molina was Satipo. The character name comes from the name of a small Peruvian town. He's drug dealer Rahad Jackson in Boogie Nights. He's Frida Kahlo's husband in Frida. He's Solomon Solomon, boss of Quiz Kid Donnie Smith in Magnolia, but he's probably best known for his performance as Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2, a role he is reprising in the upcoming Spider-Man No Way Home. This was one of his first roles, and he wore his backload of tarantulas his first day on set. Wolf Collar played Dietrich. Love Wolf Collar. Yeah. He appeared with Denim Elliott in The Boys from Brazil. He also appeared alongside John Rice davies in War and Remembrance, directed by Dark Shadows creator Dan Curtis. He's Von Hess in High Road to China, which is the closest thing to an indie movie that Tom Selleck will ever get. We just had Collar as Trompetta in our review of The Sea Wolves, and he was still playing Nazis as recently as 2017 for the first Wonder Woman film. Vic Tablian played Baranka slash Monkey Man. Baranka is also the name of a small Peruvian city. He was Khalifa in Sphinx and Dealer in The Monster Club this season. I choose to believe that it's possible his character was all the same person in this film and that when he fell forward with all the darts in his back, he survived, but he fell eye first on a rock. <laughs> so Balak brought him to Cairo to teach monkeys to be Nazis. <laughs> well, William, why would, would Belloc do that? I don't know. Why not? William Hootkins played Major Eaton. Both of his Lucasfilm character names were fat jokes, i.e. Porkins in Star Wars and Major Eaton here. We saw him last year as Dr. Zarkov's ill-fated assistant Munson in Flash Gordon. We've also seen him in Bad Timing and Sphinx. He's Eckhart in Batman and Harry Howler in Superman 4. Fred Sorensen played Jock. His only other credit is in a documentary called The Hollywood Machine. Apparently, he got to live out this scene in real life because 12 years after Raiders, they were shooting Jurassic Park in the same location in Kauai when a hurricane struck and Sorensen, an actual pilot by trade, flew the crew to safety to avoid the storm. 
I just picture Spielberg coming over the hill with a megaphone. Anthony Chin, no, not Anthony Quinn, Anthony Chin played Mohan, a Taiwanese tycoon in A View to a Kill, and General Wong in High Road to China, the Selleck Raiders movie. Pat Roach played the giant Sherpa and the first mechanic. That's the big shirtless guy who beats him up against a plane. We just had Pat Roach in Clash of the Titans where he was helping Laurence Olivier stand between takes. He also built Robo Bubo. He plays two parts in this film, one in Temple of Doom and one in a deleted scene from Last Crusade. Pat Roach is also General Kale in Willow, Brytag in Red Sonja, and Manape slash Tothamon in Conan the Destroyer. Kiran Shah played Abu, that's the little person who left the dates unattended. He's back as an Ewok in Return of the Jedi. He's Blunder in Legend, the Executioner's assistant in Baron Munchausen, Tito in The Force Awakens. So this is, he appeared in all five of the new Star Wars movies. Yeah. He's Tito in Force Awakens, Ulan Musters in Rogue One, Nieper's Panpick in Last Jedi, Karge in Solo, and Nabi Gima in Rise of Skywalker. These all sound like if you read them backwards, they'd be actual words. Say what you will about the dumb shit names they give Star Wars characters. They all have great SEO scores because when I Google Karge with a K and two Js, there's nobody else on the front page. (laughs) It's just this dude. Terry Richards played Arab Swordsman. He's a well-known stuntman who performed stunts in nine separate James Bond films. He, Denim Elliott, and Wolf Collar all starred together in the 1988 Bourne Identity miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain as Jason Bourne. I didn't even know that was a thing. George Harris played Katanga. He's also Kingsley Shacklebolt in the Harry Potter movies. Eddie To Go, not for here, Eddie To Go, played Messenger Pirate. He was Jinja in the Dogs of War earlier this season, and he's back in Top Secret as Chocolate Moose. Tony Vogel played Tall Captain. He was Brother Antonia, one of the assassin monks in The Final Conflict earlier this season. Vic Armstrong played a German soldier uncredited. He is Indiana Jones and Han Solo's primary stunt doubles. He also served as a stunt double for Roger Moore and Sean Connery as James Bond and Christopher Reeves as Superman. Those are some awesome credits for that guy. He gets to be all those people when they do their coolest stuff. He also apparently directed that Nicolas Cage Left Behind reboot. He directed that. Josh dot ag played the boulder that's what it said what? on imdb someone whose name is josh dot ag played the boulder in this movie um and i took a screenshot and posted it to twitter and like six hours later it was gone <laughs> so it's not there anymore sorry josh ag i i, I ratted you ruined out. it Terry Leonard played driver of German truck, uncredited. If you'll recall from our review of 1981's Legend of the Lone Ranger, Terry Leonard is a world-class stuntman who was injured on that set, attempting to recreate Yakima Knut's famous stagecoach stunt, jumping from a horse to several horses pulling a wagon, and then climbing down and sliding under the wagon. Somehow, he convinced Spielberg to let him reattempt the stunt here, successfully jumping from his horse to the truck and then sliding under the truck. Amusingly, in the Hollywood Follies episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, set in 1920, Indy serves as a stuntman on a western directed by John Ford, performing the same stunt, crawling under the underside of a moving wagon, taking the credit away from Yakima Kanut in the first place, and suggesting that Indy's stunt double was in fact emulating the real Indiana Jones. Dennis Murin played Nazi spy on the airplane, that's the guy who we only see looking over his Life magazine as the right. only shot in the movie. 
who I always thought was supposed to be tote. I thought oh. that too, but the lenses are a different shape. Yeah, oh, they're not I, circle. But, I but didn't if you look realize at, until just now that it wasn't tote. Yeah, <laughs> and but if you look at a picture of the guy, which I have up here. He looks like Ronald Lacey. You know who I see in that picture? He looks like Vigo to me. Oh, uh, or I was going to say uh, Toby Jones. Oh, maybe. There's like yeah, a bit a of Toby bit. Jones in there, too. Yeah, Toby Jones could should be in the next uh, Indiana Jones movie for sure. Oh, what, was he in Crystal Skull? No, he wasn't. No. He should definitely be in the next one. Like the Destroyer? Uh, Vigo the Carpathian? Carpathian. Yes, That's yeah. what I meant. He looks like the actor who plays Vigo the Carpathian to me oh, a little okay. bit. He's got this, this weird fluffs of hair around the sides of his head. Sure. Dennis Murin is a visual effects artist at ILM and the credited director of the footage from the Star Tours theme park attraction, mm. in which he also plays a Star Tours mechanic, his only other acting credit. Bob Papenbrook played Screaming Savages as a voice, so he does a voice for that intro scene. He's the second Mighty Morphin Power Rangers villain for this movie because he provides the voice of Rita Repulsa's idiot brother, Rito Revolto, which is not how last names work. <laughs> Unless Repulsa is her married name. <laughs> Chris Parsons played she married a, Mr. Repulsa. Mr. Repulsa. <laughs> Chris Parsons played a Nazi soldier. We had him last year as a dinner guest in The Shining and also in Empire as Forlom, K3PO, and a Stormtrooper. Michael Sherd played the U-boat captain. He's Admiral Ozel or Ozel in The Empire Strikes Back. He also appeared with Wolf Collar in Tom Selleck's Indiana Jones film High Road to China. Sherd, Collar, and Harrison Ford all appeared together in 1978's Force 10 from Navarone. Sherd had also auditioned for the tote role and was apparently the runner-up after Ronald Lacey, instead landing the U-boat captain. But Spielberg would make it up to him eight years later when Sherd was offered the role of Adolf Hitler himself in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Frank Welker, special vocal effects, uncredited. Uh, before this, he was probably best known as the voice of Fred Jones and Scooby-Doo on Scooby-Doo from the beginning through to today. He's still the voice of both of those characters. He's one of the most prolific voice actors in the history of film, specifically because of his prowess emulating animals. Chances are you've heard hundreds of his animal impressions, with the most famous being Abu from Disney's Aladdin, a voice he obviously perfected in this film as the voice of the Nazi monkey. Later this year, he narrates Zorro the Gay Blade. He voices a bunch of gremlins for the Hasbro cartoons. He also voiced Torch on G.I. Joe and Megatron on Transformers, all the way through to the Michael Bay films. He's Razar and Toka from TMNT2, mm -hmm. Secret of the Ooze. He was Slimer and Ray on the real Ghostbusters animated series. He's Kermit, Skeeter, and Beaker on Muppet Babies, Bronx on Gargoyles. He's the original voice of the Grimace from the McDonald Land series of commercials, like the original commercials. He voices Nuts in the backup plan. Jesse, who is Nuts? Is that a squirrel? I don't, I don't know. I remember there was a pet store in that movie. Yeah, but I don't remember anybody named Nuts. I'm sure it was a pet. Oh, well, that makes sense. I have yeah. no idea. He's Bullseye the Horse in everything Toy Story, and he's also currently the voice of Curious George and Ralph the Guard in the Animaniacs. Uh, I just recently didn't watch the whole movie, but I just wanted to show my niece the the third segment of Cat's Eye uh, with the little troll. Yeah. Because yeah. Frank Welker's uh, characterization of that character is so wonderful and yeah. fun. Oh, and in Aladdin, he's also the, the Cave of Wonders voice. Yes. Too. Mm -hmm. He does yeah, a bunch sure. of the Cave of Wonders stuff. voice. He, he's so identifiable. Right. Like... You 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 just know, it's, he's like Jim Cummings. Like it's like 
I know yep. all of Jim Cummings' voices that he does. I probably don't know all of them, but I recognize, you know, the yeah. real Cation ones and and then the the guard voice from Aladdin. Yeah. That he uses in a lot of stuff, which is the same as the Pete voice. Right. Yeah. I really want him to have done um Zoro the gay blade in the in the like Abu monkey voice. <laughs> Like I know I haven't seen that. I movie haven't yet. heard him say a word in the Abu voice. I guess I have. Yeah, but like, <laughs> I really want that to be the narration for this movie. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> for no reason, it's a monkey voice. Someone played the Love You student. Apparently, there is a lively discussion as to who exactly played the student with Love You written across her eyelids. And the theory I subscribe to from the ones I read is that this is Rebecca Miller who would show up opposite Harrison Ford 10 years later in Regarding Henry, and who has since made a name for herself as a writer and director of several films, including 2005's The Ballad of Jack and Rose, starring her husband, Daniel Day-Lewis. Rebecca Miller is also the daughter of Death of a Salesman and Crucible playwright Arthur Miller. The most flirtatious of Dr. Jones's students in the novelization is named Susan, so that might be the character's name, Susan. I think that's everything for Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year, and we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! Oh. That's right, it's a new patron, Mr. Braddock. As a $5 patron of the show, Mr. Braddock now has access to 23 full-size 70s reviews and 19 minisodes from 1980. Thank you so much, Mr. Braddock, for making the show possible. And thank you all for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing the Bushido Blade, which IMDb describes like so. A steel samurai blade that was to be given to the American ambassador by the Emperor of Japan is stolen. American sailors and Japanese samurai are sent to find it. That's our Christmas episode this year, so stay tuned. We leave you now with the trailer for the Bushido Blade. From the land of the Shogun. The Bushido Blade. In the name of the U.S. government, I demand the return of the stolen sword, the Bushido Blade. Bushido means beauty. Honor and courage. For us, death sharpens life. The Bushido Blade, starring Richard Boone, Sonny Chiba, Frank Converse, Laura Gimser, James Earl Jones, and Toshiro Mifune as the Shogun's commander. In a daring quest for the weapon that would unite two worlds. The Bushido Blade, it cuts to the heart of courage.